Hayride Podcast with Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. Join us on a journey through the world of classic country music. We will be talking about murder, prison, love, death, trains, horses, dancing, drinking, guitar picking, and the all-time great albums of country music. Jim, when you think of Original Music Magazine, what comes to mind? I think of Rolling Stone. Um, they started in 1967. Jan Wenner was the founder and still pretty much oversees the magazine. They really came out of the gate with a hot start. Uh, their first issue had a big John Lennon interview and pretty big coverage of the Grateful Dead getting arrested on drug charges in New Orleans. They... They had a lot to talk about and a lot to cover in their first year through 1967. Sgt. Pepper came out and Rolling Stone kind of started to establish themselves. And I would say that they still are a good source for not just album reviews, but movie reviews as well. In late 1967, they had the coverage of Otis Redding's fatal plane crash in Wisconsin, just outside Madison. So, yeah, they've been around, you know, my whole life. They really are the go-to place for album reviews, movie reviews. And I think one of the other areas where Rolling Stone has set the bar for quality over the years has been their interviews. They've been criticized at points for, oh, look, it's Bruce Springsteen interview again, or it's Bono interview again. But they tend to stick with an artist through their career, the ups and the downs. If somebody stops selling records for a couple of years, they'll sometimes do an interview with, you know, how come, what happened? Uh, Neil Young is a great example of that. He's had some downtimes in his career. The magazine has stuck with him to the point of, hey, Neil, you know, what's going on? What's next? Why are you not on the road right now? That kind of thing. And they're also a good place to go for political coverage. You might not always agree with their coverage, but the quality of it and certainly the passion for it is something that was well-established in the late 60s and early 70s by the legendary, fantastic one and only Hunter Thompson. And I think the magazine has felt a, a real strong obligation to continue in that spirit with their writing a tattoo of hunter s thompson's logo uh on the back of my right calf i am a very serious fan of this magazine i love the magazine i was a subscriber for the better part of two decades it really was part of my formative years it's a thrill that'll get you when you get your picture on the cover of the rolling stone Wanna see my picture on the cover? Wanna buy five copies for my mother? Wanna see my smiling face on the cover of the Rolling Stone? You mentioned the movie reviews and the album reviews. 
And there are a number of albums or movies that first came to my attention by reading the review in the back of Rolling Stone. And I can't tell you how important that stuff was prior to there being an internet. You know, now if I'm curious about some movie or album, I can just go online and look up whatever it is that I need to look up and learn whatever I want to learn. But at the time, you, you really needed tastemakers in your life. And Rolling Stone served as exactly that kind of tastemaker. They're now attempting to spring on us a top 20 country music albums of all time list. Now, these kind of lists are popular in music and other entertainment magazines. The greatest albums of this type, the greatest movies of that type. It's a wonderful starting point for fun conversations with your family and friends on a long car ride, over a few pints, over a pot of tea, whatever. We all know there's never going to be one definitive list because as much fun as it is to make a list, it is equally fun to argue with that list. And here we are loading up the hayride cart, heading out to argue with the fine folks at Rolling Stone. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. One thing is apparent to me for sure and that's that Rolling Stone doesn't know shit about country music. They released this top 100 country albums of all time list in August of 2022. And Jim and I immediately took a, a look at this list and started kind of deconstructing it and realized that if we actually had to go over 100 of their choices, Homicide in the Streets was a foregone conclusion. On the other hand, if we only had to cover the top 20, which honestly is where the most egregious faults on any list by any one or any entity are going to happen, um, <clears throat> if we only had to cover the top 20, we were going to be okay there. We could deal with it. It won't take too long. We can point out what we think they got right. And, and let me be honest, there's quite a bit that I feel they got right. Uh, I looked earlier and... Seven of the albums that are on Rolling Stone's top 20 are on mine. Uh, and there's one that easily could have been. Uh, I'm not going to give away what my list is now, but suffice it to say that I don't think that they screwed this up completely. I think they got quite a bit right. But what they got wrong, my God, did they ever get wrong. I have a bad feeling about this. So climb on board the cart and let's go for a ride through the world that's this list. Jim and I will each give our thoughts on what we think they got right, what we think they got wrong, and try and add a little bit of interesting background information for those who would like to learn more. The two episodes after that are going to be Jim bringing you his top 20 list and then me bringing you my top 20 list. Now, I'm going to go on record right now and tell you all that my top 20 list is just as egregiously bad as Rolling Stones, but for different reasons. I don't think that it's possible to have a true list of these are the best or the most worthy or whatever accolades you want to heap onto something for anything, for music or guitar players or movies or cats or whatever you want. It's just not possible. Um these things are very subjective. I'm just going to be honest 
in the fact that my list is subjectively BS. I mean, for me, it would have been easy just to name my top 20 Willie Nelson albums and call that my list. So I tried to put a little thought into it, and I'm sure Rolling Stone tried to put a little thought into theirs, but no, just no. I think very much what they're trying to do is please their younger audience and their not so country music audience. I think that's where the Shania Twain and the Taylor Swift and things like that come in. And I think they're also trying to avoid the very obvious ways that people who are real appreciators of classic country would just lay into them. They knew enough to put in the Ray Charles record and the Dolly Parton record and Coal Miner's Daughter by Loretta Lynn, things like that. They were really trying to have it both ways. They were trying to make it a respectable list for country music overall. They were trying to keep a lot of their audience that's under 35 years old from going, what the hell is this? And just tossing it in the recycling. Right. And Chris is right. These things are incredibly subjective. And like we've already said, it's as much fun to make them as it is to take them apart. Uh, the exception, of course, will be my list coming up in a future episode. But Rolling Stone tried to have it both ways, and yeah, not so much. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Okay, so let's start with the album number 20 on the Rolling Stone list. Uh, Seven Year Ache by Roseanne Cash. This record was released on February 28th of 1981. Jim, why don't you tell us what you got here? It's incredibly difficult for me to complain much about anything that has the Cash name on it in the world of music. Uh, over her career, Roseanne is brilliant. And she has the voice that comes with the family name. She's an incredible singer, great musician. She's made a lot of really good records. I don't think that this is even her second or third best record in, in her career. And I think it's very easy to argue that this is one of the best records of 1981, certainly within country or pop type music. But when I first saw this list and I saw that this was number 20, I thought, you know, I can already think of that many albums in my head in country music that are much, much better than this. This is, again, a really good album for where country music was in 1981. Uh, it was kind of becoming a bit of a mainstream fad again. The Urban Cowboy movie with John Travolta was out, and that had been a hit. Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda did 9 to 5. That's a hilarious movie, and Dolly wrote a really great hit song for the movie. Uh, country was becoming a little bit of a fad again, kind of a mainstream thing. You saw a lot of people that shouldn't be wearing cowboy hats wearing cowboy hats, and Roseanne makes a really good record that's more rockabilly and pop than country. But again, if you look at albums that came out in 1981, 
this would be a top 20 in that case easily. It has a lot of the typical characteristics of an early 80s record. There's one song on here that almost sounds like the Eurythmics trying to do country music. overall vibe of the record one of the really nice things about it is the arrangement and the style of the harmony and the backup vocals and most of that on this record is courtesy of the wonderful emmy lou harris so yeah a lot of the vocals carry that emmy lou sound in the arrangement and in the way the backup voices work with the lead voice what would i give to be a diamond this point in her career roseanne cash had kind of a, a personal musical development in her family that came from her sister's marriage her sister carlene carter june's daughter was married to nick lowe at this time nick lowe the great bass player british pop musician producer did the run of the early elvis costello records excellent credentials so, yeah, he's married to June Carter's daughter, Carlene, at this point. That's Roseanne's sister. And uh, Nick Lowe had written Without Love and a few other songs that became a big part of Johnny Cash's catalog at this point in his career. Without love, I am half human. Without love, I'm all machine. It makes perfect sense that if you have all these great musicians sitting around the table together, there's going to be a lot of rubbing off on each other. And when Chris and I first started talking about this Roseanne Cash record, my ears and my brain immediately went to, this sounds like a really good late 70s, early 80s in that Nick Lowe, Dave Edmonds type tradition, and certainly that kind of production. And that really works for this era. Um, along with the country revival in the early 80s, you had the Stray Cats and some other bands creating a bit of a rockabilly revival. And this record fits really nicely in both those worlds. But no, not an all-time great country music record. It is Roseanne's maybe third best record, it is top 20 record for the year it came out, and it certainly did a lot to help continue people having an appreciation in rockabilly and more popish country music. But no, not top 20 overall, all time. No, 
Sorry, Roseanne, not today. Yeah, I I agree with you. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I looked at when we were preparing for this episode uh, was what was going on in the Pop Top 40 at the same time that this album was released. Uh, you know, you're right. Between movies like Urban Cowboy and 9 to 5, there was something of a country resurgence into the mainstream collective. And at the time that this album was released, which was February 28th of 1981, you had uh, I Love a Rainy Night, which was number one on the pop charts, 9 to 5, which was number two on the pop charts. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. In the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a way to make a living Barely getting by It's all taking and no giving And Smoky Mountain Rain, uh, the Ronnie Millsap song Which was 24 on the pop charts So <clears throat> this record does a really good job of kind of embracing that new country movement that clearly the industry was going for. They were trying to slick up country and sell it as a mainstream product. Um, what's really interesting to me here is that I was familiar with the title track. I mean, I, I remember that song being on the radio quite a bit when I was younger. Um, and as a matter of fact, I had a kind of an interesting personal resurgence with it um, about 10 years or so ago um in 2010 and 2011 i spent quite a bit of time in houston texas opening up a new uh, location for the firm that i work with and while i was there i discovered a local classic country station that was playing all of the country hits you remember from the late 70s early 80s yeah, the opening track, uh, Rainin, has this really neat Beatles-esque guitar lick in it. Out my window, not 24 hours ago, I saw my baby, he was walking on out the door. Um, if you listen to I Can't Resist, which was co-written by Rodney Crowell, uh, Roseanne's uh, former husband. That has a really neat Baker Street-sounding sax accents that are on it. So I think the overall product is pretty good, although completely different from the title track itself. Clearly, they were going for a vibe here. I do believe they captured it. Uh, you mentioned Emmy Lou. Also featured are Booker T. Jones of Booker T. and the MGs fame and Mickey Raphael, who's known from Willie Nelson's band. So for sure, there are a number of reasons why this album is a good record to listen to and an enjoyable record to listen to. But I have to agree with you. I don't really see this one as being a top 20 anything. Um, certainly amongst the top 20 best albums Roseanne Cash ever did. And you're right, it's it's probably in her top three. Um, one other thing I would actually like to point out 
on this one because I, I just was fascinated by this. When I was younger, I always thought that the drums on the title track were a drum machine. And I can't believe somebody can just go in there and hold such a simple groove that tightly and make it sound just, it's just this incredible piece of the landscape. Yeah, Chris, one of the cool things that you picked up on with this Roseanne Cash album is the drumming. The great Nashville A-team session drummer, Larry London. You'd swear that some of this stuff on the Roseanne Cash album is a drum machine, and it's not. It's Larry London. The guy throughout country music circles has often been compared to the great Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones. And anybody who knows music really knows that Charlie Watts, the late great, was incredibly solid drummer, just the perfect human rhythm machine, rock solid, always on the beat. And it's a very well-deserved compliment that Larry London should be included in such great company. We can check out this sample of Charlie Watts. can listen to Larry London from one of his many fine drum solos. can really see why people make that comparison and why in Larry London's case it's just so appropriate and well earned. I think for any drummer to be compared to either one of these gentlemen would be a very high compliment. At number 19, Rolling Stone offers us George Strait with Straight from the Heart from 1982. Chris, what do you got? So this record was released on June 3rd of 1982, or as I like to think of it, um, three days before my ninth birthday. This is a much more traditional sounding record than Seven Year Egg. So I do think the, the country sound on this is a little more defined. It's Straight's second album, so he wasn't brand new, but it really is. it's definitely the record that broke him. Um, I believe that this is always a danger to do this without fact checking, but I believe that George Strait has more country number ones than anyone else. So listeners, if I'm wrong, six string hayride at yahoo.com, yell at me, tell me to never, ever, ever record again without fact checking. But I do believe that, uh, this is the one that got him started. This is the reason that we know who George Strait was. However, it also smacks to me of that Nashville attempt or 
more proper to say country music record business attempt to continue trying to make country as slick and as easily digestible as is humanly possible and what i mean by this so i didn't know any of the players or personnel on this album at all with one exception uh, other than george Strait, of course which was buddy cannon uh buddy's produced almost all of willie nelson's records uh since 2012 so i knew who buddy cannon was but i didn't recognize any of the other people this was just you know again this is a label's attempt to give us a slick polished product that could be listened to just as easily uh on the left coast or the right coast as it could in the heartland on a hidden beach under a golden sun she spread a blanket that we laid down on and loved the world's way into each other's eyes and found our bodies lost in paradise like castaways in Marina Del Rey I do like the album for what it is. It was a nice reminder of my youth. When I was listening to this one, Foolhearted Memory and Marina Del Rey both took me back to my childhood since those were country radio staples in midland texas in 1982 uh foolhearted memory in fact was straight's first number one the same old stew the same old fool played by the rules but didn't win there's an old love in his heart that he can't lose he tried forgetting but he knows that it's no use. He's got a foolhardy memory. Uh, I I did like the fact that they included a Guy Clark tune, "Heartbroke." That's one of those things where I always wish I could have been a fly on the wall. I want to know whose decision that was. Was that the label or was that George Strait? Because that one kind of seems to me that somebody was going for a little bit of a, a bona fide and they said Let, let's throw in a guy clark tune uh if it was george Strait's decision well then fair play to him because guy clark is a big part of why i like country music so i, I enjoyed that the other big hit from this album is amarillo by morning uh, which is actually a cover tune it's interesting because the original version of this song is by terry stafford and it's actually more of a piano ballad but this this is a really good example of an artist taking a song that's not theirs redoing the arrangement redoing the delivery of the vocals and kind of claiming it as their own new thing amarillo by morning up from san antonio everything that i got is just what i've got on when that sun is high in that texas sky i'll be bucking at the county fair and the other thing that i find absolutely fascinating 
about this album and this is probably just the audio file in me but this record was recorded and mixed in 1982 and yet it was recorded and mixed digitally i do not know when the first country music album was recorded digitally or mixed digitally but this has to be one of the earliest ones uh, this is before cds were even invented jim you want to tell us your thoughts on george Strait, uh, straight from the heart well you're absolutely right about this being one of the really early and pioneering examples of digital recording which had just begun a few years earlier in 1979 guitarist and composer ry cooter issued the first digital album it was called bop till you drop and just shortly thereafter you have chris i know this is one of your personal favorites the fleetwood mac album tusk is probably the first big blockbuster rock and roll album to be digitally recorded And then, yeah, shortly thereafter, 1982, you have the George Strait album we're talking about here, Straight from the Heart. And then another big step forward comes through the early 80s, mostly from Peter Gabriel's recording and pushing technology towards a digital format. The other thing you have happening right around the same time in 1983 in film and soundtrack recording is Lucasfilm's Return of the Jedi, where George Lucas actually had movie theaters promise to redevelop and reinstall their speaker systems to accommodate the soundtrack for both the music and for the audio elements of the film. By 1984, 1985, these breakthroughs that we're talking about really take hold and digital recording for better and sometimes for worse really becomes the standard in the recording industry in both music and in movies. A lot of the debate briefly revolves around the idea that in the early days of digital recording, it sounded kind of cold and tinny compared to the warmth and the emotional familiarity of analog recording, certainly vinyl and cassette. And if you go back, there's a lot of discussion in Rolling Stone and other music magazines, where as back catalogs from famous artists were putting out material on CD, the first run of Led Zeppelin albums on CDs, according to Rolling Stone and me and other magazines that cover this sort of thing they were tinny they were awful and they really made you miss your vinyl even if you had to get up every 22 minutes and flip the thing over and it was for that reason that george martin didn't redo the beatles albums until the later 80s he was waiting for the technology to catch up 
And eventually it did. And it's because of people like George Strait who were willing to work with us in the early days, which takes us back to 1982. I like Strait's voice. He is a good singer. Is he one of the top 20 all-time country singers? For me, no. Maybe 35 to 40. But he's not Patsy Cline. He's not Dolly Parton. He's not Willie Nelson. He's not June Carter. He's not a lot of people that would fill in number one to 19. And I single him out in the ranking as a singer because he writes one song for the record. It's kind of a novelty song. I can't see Texas from here. But baby, it's a shame because I always feel the same when I can't see Texas from here. I can't see Texas from here. No matter how I try, it makes me want to die. So if you see me looking down, I'm trying not to show this frown cause I can't see Texas from here. He does a little bit of instrument accompaniment, but he's not really known for anything but his voice. And for 1980s country music, it's a damn good voice. Lots of twang, lots of mass appeal on the love songs. And with Amarillo by morning, he really does hit the weariness and just the beaten down feeling of the character in the song. They took my saddle in Houston, broke my leg in Santa Fe. Lost my wife and a girlfriend somewhere along the way. But I'll be looking for eight when they pull that gate, and I hope that judge ain't blind. Amarillo by morning. Country music in the 1980s is, in a lot of ways, more of a pop phenomena. There's very good singers. There's a lot of pioneering work in album production. You wind up with some good soloists, good musicians. Uh, Vince Gill is a fantastic guitar player from this era. But you don't really get all-time greats. You, you kind of have to, if you're going to be honest about it, break it down by, this is a good record from 1982, 1983. It's not something that 20 years from now, when people are still talking about Willie Nelson and Hank Williams and Dolly Parton, nobody's going to say, oh, 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 George Strait, George Strait. E very, very unlikely. Uh, again, great singer for his era, not quite an all-time great. Now for number 18 on Rolling Stone's list, we're going to go back in time a few years and talk about Out of Hand by Gary Stewart, which was released in 1975. Jim, take it away. Well, the man has an amazing singing voice, but number 18, no, not quite. Um, from 1975, Gary Stewart has one of those spooky, haunting kind of tenor voices, really closer, I guess, to the Hank Williams tradition than anything else. But the songs are, it, it almost becomes self-parody because it's drinking, heartache, heartache, drinking, drinking, heartache. He doesn't even take much of a break to throw in mama or prison or a pony or anything. Um, he's not a happy man, but the stories he's telling and certainly, geez, the voice that he's telling them in 
that is amazing. I would say he is one of the great singers of his era. I think that's been a common thing so far in how we've been looking at this. Uh, he had a nice hit with She's Acting Single, I'm Drinking Doubles. I'm drinking doubles. I had my pain. I drowned my troubles. She's acting single. I'm drinking doubles. Again, you know, great voice, great stories. You feel bad for the guy. But I can, you know, I look at this and I think, okay, number 18. And then my brain immediately feeds me 19 other records that I know a few decades from now will still be in the all time discussion. And this won't be. For mid-70s through early 80s country music, fantastic. And again, you've got a lot of death, a lot of heartbreak, and you've got this wonderful, creepy tenor voice. He closes the album with a good murder ballad. But no, not an all-time great. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I, I really agree with you on those points i know agreements are pretty common at the hayride i my thoughts on this one are twofold first of all i find it interesting that this is stewart's rca debut he was done with the music industry he had left nashville he he was just he was through he he had no intention of recording again as far as i could tell although wasn't really easy to find a lot of information here, but a friend of his actually talked RCA into signing him. So he gets brought back and this is his RCA debut. The record itself is just straight up honky tonk. I would like to point out that the Nashville a team was not just a singular team of musicians. So you're not going to have one bass player, one guitar player, one drummer, etc. These are just the guys who were the top in-demand guys for studio sessions at this point in time. It was not uncommon for these guys to play on multiple uh, recording sessions in a single day, often two, sometimes three. So you would have members of the A-team who are going to play on, you know, three multiple hour recording sessions a day, that's how in demand these guys were. So let's actually talk a little bit about a few of them. So on bass, you have players like Bob Moore, uh, Henry Strelecki. Drummers include guys like Buddy Harmon, Jerry Kerrigan, uh, Larry London, who we talked about in the Roseanne Cash uh, segment. For guitar players, you have Grady Martin, who we did talk about on the Murder Ballad episode, uh, Hank Garland. Uh, Harold Bradley, who was the brother of Owen Bradley, who is one of the main producers of these sessions. Uh, you have Jerry Kennedy. Um, you also have guys like Chip Young, famous for playing the intro into Jolene by Dolly Parton. On uh, fiddle, you have Tommy Jackson. Um, you have steel players like Pete Drake, Buddy Emmons, Ralph Mooney. You have Weldon Myrick. Now, there's actually a funny story 
about Pete Drake, where when George Harrison was getting ready to do the sessions for All Things Must Pass, uh, just at the end of the Beatles' career, he really wanted to have Pete Drake play on uh, a couple of recording sessions with him because he was just a big fan. story goes is you know somebody tells pete drake hey george harrison wants you to play on one of his records and pete is like who's that now presumably he had heard of the beatles but he just you know he just wasn't into that world so you know these guys they, they were kind of insulated in their own little bubble but that bubble was pretty well known also an interesting side note is that in 2007 the a-team was actually inducted into the musicians hall of fame and museum in nashville so again, th these guys were absolutely responsible for a lot of the sound that we're going to talk about in coming years on the Hayride. Chris, that's an excellent thing to bring up and share with the audience. You get a lot of great singers on these records and you rarely hear about who's the bass player, who's playing guitar, who's the fiddle player, who's the drummer. And through the 60s and 70s, not just in country music, you really can tell the, the signature, the hallmark of any great record label or uh, production recording studio set up in this era is defined by the house band. Uh, as Chris was telling us in country music, you have the A-team out in Los Angeles working with the Beach Boys and a lot of the girl groups. And some of the early 60s Southern California pop, you have the Wrecking Crew um, anchored by Carol Kay, the fantastic bass player. In Detroit at Motown, you have the Funk Brothers. Here in Chicago at Chess Records, you have Willie Dixon on bass and Hubert Sumlin on guitar holding down the fort on almost all of those chess record sessions from this era. And then in Memphis at Stax, you have Steve Cropper and Booker T and the MGs as the house band on the Sam and Dave records. The Otis Redding records, the Carla Thomas records, it's really important to take a look at who are the musicians that are making these singers as fantastic as they are. If you have a good house band and a bunch of good singers and some good songwriters, you are going to create records that clearly, you know, 50, 60 years later, we are still talking about these things with great appreciation. This is the backbone of classic country music this is the backbone of what makes this genre what it is people who were just insanely talented to the point of knowing when to show off and when not to show off there is an interesting thought that kept occurring to me though 
when I was listening to this album and looking at the fact that they placed it relatively high up on this list, and that's that I really didn't know who Gary Stewart was. I still really don't know who Gary Stewart is. I mean, of course, I'm slightly familiar at this point, but it, it wasn't, you know, the, the other names we've talked about are names. Roseanne Cash. Casual fans of the genre should know who she is. Could a person that you know who they are have one of the top albums of all time? Sure. George Strait. Again, another name that pretty much everybody who's a, a fan of country music is going to be aware of. But Gary Stewart, no, just, just not a hugely popular figure. Now, that in and of itself doesn't mean that he can't have made one of the best albums of all time. Uh, I, I can think of a few records that I've loved a lot more than most people have over the years where it would make my top 20 list of whatever genre, but <clears throat> wouldn't necessarily be the same for others. But in this case, it kind of reminded me of something that happens in the other music world that you and I are a big part of, which is the Grateful Dead. There's this thing that happens sometimes called Deader Than Now, where somebody tries to drop a reference that's more obscure and more, you know, deeply meaningful to try and show that they're a bigger fan or more knowledgeable or somehow a better person. And honestly, this album making number 18 on a list, which was compiled by a group of people, it, it smacked to me of Deader Than Now. This seems to be some people who are trying to say, you should have heard of this, but you haven't. So here we go. Ha ha, we know more than you. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Having said that, I'd like to close by saying this is definitely the kind of album you should uncork a good whiskey to. It is fun. It is enjoyable. It is not the 18th best album of all time. That's a really, really great way to describe the motivation for them putting this record on the list. They're really making a desperate grab at some cult credibility rolling stone runs this same racket when they do their rock and roll lists by mentioning the velvet underground over and over again but then never mentioning any of the members that weren't lou reed or any of the records that weren't sweet jane it's their way of saying we dig deep we have you know some cult cred here and they do because they looked up the first thing on google and then wrote it down in their notes uh, that's very much what Chris is getting at with their motivation for Gary Stewart here. A again, an excellent singer, great storyteller. The songs are sad and tragic, and they really, you know, it's a great story. I'm not weak, I tell myself. I stay because I'm strong. The truth is I'm not man enough to stop her from doing me wrong She's acting single I'm drinking doubles And you feel sorry for the guy in a lot of the songs, but no, not an all-time great. I'm definitely with you on that one. Okay, folks, at number 17, Rolling Stone gives us from the great Loretta Lynn, coal miner's daughter rolling stone oh thank you now you're actually finally getting somewhere chris 
Tell us why. I think that it's important that we point out that recently, as we were getting ready to start production on our first episode, or what became the first episode, uh, Loretta Lynn passed away at the age of 90. And certainly that's a loss that is felt with the entire music community and certainly within the entire country music community. So, uh, you know, it's never a shock when somebody who's 90 years old passes away, but it still feels like a big loss when that somebody is Loretta Lynn. So having said that, let's, let's talk about this record. So this was released on January 4th of 1971. So we're taking another little step back in time from the prior album that we talked about. Uh, it also features a number of the same musicians. So I talked about some of these guys on the Gary Stewart segment, but Pig Robbins and Buddy Harmon and Bob Moore, uh, the Jordan Nairs, Grady Martin, these are all players who make an appearance on this album. To me, this is a very interesting study in the versatility of these guys. If you listen to that Gary Stewart record, they're mostly just flat out cooking. I mean, they're playing their asses off. And here, the tendency is to lay back, especially on something like the title track, which sounds like almost anybody with even basic competent guitar skills could play. And yet here these guys are playing it in just such a way that perfectly allows Loretta's uh, Loretta Lynn's voice to be the true star of the show. Now, this, this album was recorded in Owen Bradley's barn. I don't know how much that's going to mean to a lot of the more casual fans who are listeners, but... Owen Bradley's barn was the home of some of the most epic recording sessions in country music history. Owen Bradley was one of the, well, really the biggest part of creating the Nashville sound. Uh, he and Chet Atkins, more so Chet Atkins, are usually considered to be the creators of the Nashville sound. But Owen Bradley was just a mountain among men when it comes to his importance and credibility to the industry. So here we have Loretta Lynn, who isn't the beginning of her career, you know, not the very beginning, but she's early on in her career process. And she's mentioned in her book, in the book of the same name as the album, Coal Miner's Daughter, that she has a difficult time working, uh, making records, you know, she, she has some shyness and, you know, just this uh, feeling that she's not necessarily hitting the nail on the head all the time, but she talks about how much she loved this setup, how much she loved this setting and how much she loved working with Mr. Bradley, as she called him. So here we have something that was still kind of a novelty at the time, which is a solo female artist who is writing some of the material that she's putting out uh the song the title track is autobiographical it is essentially the story of loretta lynn's early life and upbringing uh she was born a coal miner's daughter in a cabin on a hill in butcher holler well i was born to coal miner's daughter in a cabin on a hill in 
preacher holler We were poor but we had love That's the one thing that daddy made sure of He shoveled coal to make a poor man's dollar when you hear those lines, you can very clearly see those things in your mind. She's really communicating what life was like for her in that time. The other interesting things to me here are the songs that are featured by some of the other artists. For example, she covers Hello, Darling" by Conway Twitty, only from a female perspective. I find that to be fascinating because again if you if you think back to the time when this happened a little over 50 years ago it's not a twist you would expect as much as you would in today's day and age what's that darling how am i doing i'm doing all right except i can't sleep and i cry all night till dawn what i'm Is I love you and miss you. This record did make it to number one on the country charts, and it also made it to 83 on the pop charts overall. This is actually a really good example of the fact that if the country music industry doesn't try and sell out and have some pop sensibilities that intentionally appear on their albums, because there is nothing pop sensible on this record at all this is just straight up country music the general public still picks up on it enough for it to make it into the billboard 200 and in fact it was into the 100 so maybe the country music industry as a whole should have taken greater note that when you let the music speak for itself it will have something to say mommy Jim, why don't you go ahead and tell us what you think of Miss Loretta Lynn and this fantastic record? And thank God Rolling Stone stumbled into getting one of these right. Um, this is one of just a few on the Rolling Stone list that Chris and I also have on our individual lists in different spots. But yeah, we definitely agree with them on this one. This is an album. This is a book. And a few years later on, becomes a hit Oscar-nominated movie with Sissy Spacek playing Loretta Lynn. And like Chris said, this is really powerful because it's Loretta's story. It's her birth, her parents, her poverty, her struggle, her upbringing. With Roseanne Cash and George Strait and Gary Stewart, we have three really talented singers who pick good material and help to arrange good material and deliver those songs in a quality way. But with Coal Miner's Daughter, this is the first one on the list that is so deeply, deeply personal. 
she also, uh, amongst the great covers that Chris was mentioning, she does a nice version of a Glenn Campbell song called Less of Me. And she also, in one of the other songs, What Makes Me Tick, has this great kind of woman's right to declare her feelings just as strongly as any man in the room. It's a fantastic record. It really becomes her greatest work, her signature song, her signature album. Again, you get a book and an Oscar-nominated film out of this. It is deeply personal. And I think one of the reasons this record is so great because it's Loretta speaking to us. And if you have had hard times, if you have memories of sharing both good and hard times with your parents, if you have memories of where you were as a kid and how you got to where you are now, this record is going to speak to you on some level. And when we lost her a little while ago, uh, one of the true queens of country music, right up there with June and Dolly and Emmy Lou. Loretta delivers a career defining masterpiece here. Coal Miner's Daughter. Thank you, Rolling Stone. You're starting to get a handle on this. Lay your head upon my Here at the Hayride, we've enjoyed sharing recipes with you from the June Carter Johnny Cash family cookbook. We are, according to our friends, also full of lots of other suggestions. We don't have any sponsors in the traditional or in the financial sense, but we do see a lot of interesting things happening in the music world and certainly in the country music world, and it's our duty to share these things with fellow music lovers and friends everywhere. In beautiful Dublin City, we'd like you to check out the music of our dear friend Brian Brody. Brian has been making records for over 10 years. He's an incredible pub musician all around Dublin and the Irish Republic. You can check out his website or his Facebook at brianbrody.com. It's a lot of traditional Irish music. It's a lot of Thin Lizzie-inspired Irish rock and roll music. He is a fantastic musician. I've known him for years. He's a great friend. You would absolutely love checking out his take on traditional folk and rock and roll. When I met you in the doorway And you took me with a glance I should have took that last bus home But I asked you for a dance now we go steady to the pictures I always get chocolate stains on my pants My body's going crazy 
said I'm living in. Come on, let's hear you say it. I'm dancing in the moonlight. And we'd like to tell you about our friends at Klipsch Speakers. Klipsch has been around for years. They're major pioneers in the development of horn-loaded speakers. They have created speakers for professional use all over North America and for the home audio enthusiast. Our friends at Paducah Home Theater, and you can look up their website by that name, are the biggest distributors of Klipsch in the middle part of the country. Great guys, great product, high-end speakers, truly the Rolls-Royce of speakers you can have in your home. I'd like to echo Jim's comments about Klipsch speakers. Uh, for many years, I did listen to music on whatever speakers I had or could afford or scrounge. But probably 20 years ago or so, I started hearing this constant Klipsch commercial that was Jim telling me that I really should get Klipsch. And I did, and I haven't looked back. I, I really, if you appreciate a quality product with a beautiful crisp tone that has a design that will work for just about any size room or any setup, they're really the way to go. Klipsch is all I use in my house now. Hey, when you're in Chicago, stop by Alcala's Western Wear on Chicago Avenue. You need another cowboy hat, and you'd probably look better in those boots than you think you do. And a long coat, yeah, what the hell, you're there. Bolo ties right at the cash register. Alcala's has been in Chicago, just a little south of the Ukrainian village neighborhood for a good 50 years fantastic western wear you got to check them out you've been listening to six string hayride podcast with chris wainscott and jim o'malley we are in the middle of deconstructing the rolling stone top 20 country albums of all time list and right now we're going to take a little break to remind you to please look us up on facebook at six string hayride and please remember to email us stay in touch send your comments suggestions greetings whatever you got we'll take it at six string hayride at yahoo.com i'd also like to give a shout out to the folks at dr guitar strings uh since i've been playing guitar pretty much the only strings i've ever used on a regular basis are dr if you like a string with a nice bright tone and super light action because you've got real soft hands like me dr they got you covered now we're going to stay in the same year, 1971, and here with number 16 on the list is In Search of a Song by Tom T. Hall. Jim's going to tell us what he thinks about this album and about Tom T. Jim? I think Mr. Hall here himself in interviews has described this record as, quote, his finest hour. Uh, Tom T. Hall has this wonderful manner and style in his music of straight storytelling almost like a spoken narrative i met him in a hospital about a year ago and why i still remember him i guess i'll never know he'd lie there and cry out in a medicated fog here i am in this dang bed and who's gonna feed them hogs the other songwriter singer from this period uh, that is incredibly similar in style and i'm sure they would have influenced each other is chicago's own singing mailman john prine where you get that same small town 
despair, suffering, isolation, feeling that the world has left you behind, type weariness. And both men deliver that in as much a talking style as a singing style. It really hits you in the gut. It's powerful storytelling. And on this one, you know, Tom T says he's in search of a song. I'd say he has found several brilliant ones. It almost has this kind of sparse realism of sort of a film noir or a 1940s detective type story. You can feel the alienation. You can feel the sense of hopelessness in the material. The storytelling, again, just incredible. There are moments where it almost seems like he's listening in on someone else's conversation and kind of relating that to you. There's a really, really nice one on here called It Sure Can Get Cold in Des Moines. It's kind of a black waltz type number. It's dark, but it has something actually we talked about way back with El Paso where you, there's a lot of country music that has that three, four waltz or polka type pace to it. And it's really because it makes it easy to dance to one, two, three, one, two, three, even myself who cannot dance can handle that because all you have to do is be able to count to three. Uh, again, early seventies, you have these great storytelling singer songwriters that emerge Tom T. Hall and John Prine, I think, are the best of the bunch. They bring this one in at number 16. I think they are right to have it on the list. And I know this is one that, um, with Tom T.'s music, this is something I mostly picked up from Chris's suggestions. What do you got? So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the thing that's going to become a bit of a repetitive theme here. So again, on this particular album, you have many of the A-team. We we see, uh, or well, rather we hear, Pig Robbins, Pete Drake, Buddy Harmon, Bob Moore, Charlie McCoy, Harold Bradley, et cetera, et cetera, on this album. And again, much like on the Loretta Lynn album of the same year that we just talked about, the A-team really shows this amazing range by just staying back and letting the songs take the spotlight. And I can't overemphasize how important that is when we're talking about Tom T. Hall. You know, the, there's a reason that he's known as the storyteller. And this record shows it to a large degree. I mean, one of the things that I personally love about his songs is that when you listen to them, you get this feeling that Everything you're hearing could be 100% true, or it could be 100% an invention of his imagination. But what makes it special is that you don't particularly care what the answer is. He just has this ability to capture emotion and random thought and observations that might slip by most people. Uh, there's also a lot of versatility in his writing overall here. Uh, for example, The Year Clayton Delaney Died is a song with no chorus. You know, I can't really think of too many songs that don't have a chorus, but here we are with one of them. I remember the year that Clayton Delaney died 
They said for the last two weeks that he suffered and cried It made a big impression on me Although I was a barefoot kid They said he got religion at the end And I'm glad that he did uh, And again, was Clayton Delaney a real person? I mean, I, I, I since know that in interviews, it turns out that he's actually based on other people. But when you're listening to the song and you haven't read any of these interviews, is Clayton Delaney a real person? You're not sure, but you also realize it doesn't matter because the song itself is just this fascinating vehicle that's taking you on this journey where you're really learning more about the world, the world of music the songwriting of Tom T. Hall, country music as a whole. It's just this fascinating adventure. I often wondered why Clayton, who seemed so good to me, never took his guitar and made it down in Tennessee. Well, Daddy said he drank a lot, but I could never understand. There's also a song called Who's Gonna Feed Them Hogs, which is a really good example of something that happens to everyone. There's random bits of conversation or random fleeting memories that years later you can recall them for no apparent reason. And that's exactly what's going on in this song. You know, a, a man is in the hospital, he's not doing well, and he's just randomly blurting out who's going to feed them hogs, because on some level he's worried about the, the pigs on his farm. 400 hogs, they just standing out there. My wife can't feed them and my neighbors don't care. They can't get out and roam around like my old hunting dogs. Here I am in this dang bed, and who's going to feed them hogs? Most people would hear something like that and let it go. Tom T. Hall hears it and says, there's a song here, and he goes and he finds the song. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of my favorite lyrics uh, from Tom T. Hall is on this record. There's a song called The Little Lady Preacher, where uh, Mr. Hall puts this very unique spin so it turns out that the title character has departed the town and things are going to change. And he's got this line that says, I had to face the heartbreak, unemployment and all. It's not the kind of thing you would think of like, oh, the, the lady has left. Did she flee with, you know, did she flee to find what she's seeking? What's happening? And his point is, yeah. And also I don't have a job anymore. So I just find these these really neat little pieces of Americana get captured in Tom T. Hall's songs. And he's written a lot of songs that were hits for other people. Uh, he, he's, he's very well known for that. I mean, there's a reason he always was thought of as a songwriter first. But as a performer, when you hear him deliver his own lyrics, it, it's just magical. It's one of those things where his voice is not a classic country music voice in terms of his ability to sing. He's got an ability to deliver spoken word type content while staying in key is how I would discover, describe his voice. 
but he does that in a very, very high level. And as we've been doing, yet another recipe from the Johnny Cash June Carter Family Cookbook. Here's Chris to give it to us this time. This week's recipe is going to be heart-healthy apple tuna salad. Let's face it, when your heart is taking as much damage as it has from a list like this, we got to make sure we have some light fare that's going to help us recover without putting us in the ER. So here we go. For this recipe, we're going to need two hard-cooked eggs, two five-ounce cans of albacore tuna in spring water, drained, one cup mayonnaise or less if desired, a half cup finely chopped sweet onions like Walla Walla, Vidalia, or Texas Sweet, one medium red apple, peeled, cored, and finely chopped, and salt and black pepper to taste. Peel the eggs, slice them in half, and remove the yolks. Discard the yolks or save for another use. Finely chop the egg whites. Place the egg whites and tuna in a medium bowl. Stir in the mayo, onions, and apple. Add the salt and black pepper to taste. Refrigerate for at least 45 minutes before serving. This recipe makes four servings. All right, folks, we're at number 15 now. And if you notice with the last few entries, Rolling Stone is starting to get their act together and get into a little bit of a groove here. They really kick up their credibility here at number 15. Patsy Cline. This is from 1961. This is her first record after her car accident that laid her up for a little bit. The record is Showcase. And Chris, we both love this record. Please tell us why. So, of course, anytime you're talking about the greatest voices of country music, Patsy Cline is going to feature in that discussion. I I don't want to pigeonhole her by saying one of the greatest female singers of all time because she's so much more than that. She's just one of the greatest voices of country music. One fun fact here for me, again, you know, the other genre of music that we talk about when we're not recording the Hayride all the time is rock. And Ben Keith, who is the pedal steel player on this uh, album, becomes famous for playing with Neil Young for several decades. Uh, he's the guy who was on Harvest and all of those classic 70s Neil Young albums. So, you know, the country music connection runs deep throughout the music world, and that's certainly no different here. So this uh, album is her first album in four years or so at this point. It's the first album since her self-titled debut in 1957. The reason for that is that she was locked into a, a very bad recording contract. She was with a smaller label. Uh, this was a common practice back in the day where somebody who would be really excited to sign a recording contract would, you know, and not have the business savvy or the level of attorneys and managers who factor into the business these days, uh, at least not representing the singer, you know, they would sign a contract and it would be come as what may. 
And so that's the case here where she signs a deal where the label actually gets to pick what she's going to record. And of course, naturally, they're they're picking from their publishing company that they also own. And so her records were being distributed by DECA, recorded by Owen Bradley. So those two things right there you would think would make for just a hit-making machine when we're talking about somebody with the, the star power of Patsy Cline's voice uh, and the energy that she displayed in live performances. If you ever go on to YouTube and watch any videos of her, she's just amazing. She's just a ball of energy. And yet she was locked into this deal where some suited a label was picking horrifically bad material for her. And there was just nothing that could be done to make it sound better than it was. There was also a constant debate between her and really everyone on what genre of music she should be singing. You know, they like even Owen Bradley kind of thought of her as a pop singer. You know, she's got a pop voice, but she always thought of herself first and foremost as a country singer. And I think in hindsight, that's how we all think of her now. I mean, obviously, these are country records. She had a country soul with everything she did. And so on this particular album, we have her first number one hit, which was I Fall to Pieces. Uh, that one actually crossed over and went number 15 on the pop charts. And then her follow-up hit was Crazy. Now, if we're going to talk about country music bona fides, you know, these songs were written by Harlan Howard and Willie Nelson, respectively. But the other thing, and you know, when when we talk about her voice and the the absolute range that it has across genres, if you've ever wondered what the Buck Owens tune fooling around would sound like as cocktail jazz, it's on here. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's a really nice reinterpretation of someone else's work. I know that you've been fooling around on me right from the start. So I'll give back your ring and I'll take back my heart. And when you're tired of fooling around with two or three, just come on home and fool around with me. I also love the fact that we have a Cole Porter tune on here uh, with True Love and a Bob Wills tune on here with San Antonio Rose. Deep within my heart lies a melody, a song of old San Antonio, where in dreams I live with a memory beneath the stars all crossing genres here she's going for you know a pop legend and a well western swing but certainly country legend and i think she just pulls this off very nicely uh jim what are your thoughts on this one well i really like that you spend more time talking about the not so obvious songs on this record uh, one of my many problems with Rolling Stone and their list, and I, you know, it's wonderful that they have this Patsy Cline record on at this position. Uh, the record is also on my list at a different position, though. But they they say, and I quote, the second LP from Patsy Cline pads out a couple of hit singles no god geez guys um every song on this record is pretty damn good there's the three big obvious ones i fall to pieces 
Crazy, which Willie Nelson wrote, and then Walking After Midnight, the other big Patsy Cline well-known hit. But each time I go out with someone new, you walk by and I fall to pieces. For thinking that my love could hold you And as the skies turn gloomy Night winds whisper to me I'm lonesome as I can be I go out walking After midnight Out in the starlight Just hoping you may be somewhere Other songs on this record really show her being adventurous and just willing to kind of take on just about anything. With the Bob Wills cover, San Antonio Rose, on the original record, you get a lot of fiddle and you get a couple voices. It's a more filled out kind of sound, and it certainly has more of that Bob Wills swing to it. But Patsy Klein is such an extraordinary singer that it's the one voice with one fiddle violin behind it for accents. And you don't really stop to think that there's something missing in the song. She just kind of takes it on and she's like, well, they did it with this extra voice or this extra instrument. I'm just going to sing it and my voice is going to cover everything. And yeah, she's absolutely right. The other extraordinary kind of out of left field cover that she does here is the old Sons of the Pioneers cowboy ballad, The Wayward oh, Wind. Wind is a restless wind, a restless wind that yearns to wander and he was born the next of kin and when you listen to the original we we were kind of talking about the sons of the pioneer and marty robinson that style of singing uh, back in the murder episodes but again patsy just takes all that on herself and you think with the jordanaires they were the famous Elvis backup vocal group through his early uh, 60s period, you know, you'd think, okay, they're going to come in, they're going to fill it out. It'll be more like a, a group singing. No, they just come in a little bit here and there and kind of layered something underneath Patsy, but it's all her. And when you listen to Sons of the Pioneers, it's a group of guys singing. It's that soaring kind of majestic cowboy choir sort of sound and again, Patsy's like, no, nah, I can do that myself. And she's absolutely right. And you would be a fool to argue with her. 
The other kind of funky thing on here is the Buck Owens cover, Fooling Around. Buck Owens songs have a real obvious style. You know it's Buck Owens. There's kind of a, a bounce and a swing to his music. And again, Patsy's like, mm, I have a way. I'm going to do it you know, my way. And Bob Moore, the great bass player, gives her this really funky, almost Dean Martin kind of lounge thing. And it kind of reminds me of the same sort of vibe in a Chuck Berry song, Havana Moon. Me all alone with jug of rum. Me stand and wait for boat to come. It's long the night, it's quiet the dark. The boat she late since 12 o'clock. Me watch the tide easing in. It's low the moon, but high the wind. Moon. Tropical would almost be a way to describe the way the bass sounds in this. And it's remarkable for a cover of a Buck Owens song because there's a bass line. It, Buck Owens, you know, famous for the guitar parts, Don Rich in on his records. But Buck was deliberately producing and mastering his recordings to sound as if they were coming out of a car radio because the man was a sparkly hit machine all the way around. Patsy's thinking more of a through complete album idea. And she adds a baseline to a Bug Owen song. And I think it's just worth noting for that. The other thing about Patsy and Chris brought this up at the beginning, she was kind of stuck in a situation where she had a producer and a record label that basically saw her as a means to an end. There's a very common phenomenon at this point in music where you have a producer and a record label, and they own the rights to a bunch of songs. They have some songwriters on staff, and they're just basically looking for a voice that will sell these other elements. And that's not really a creative process. It's not really art. It's kind of a business formula. This same thing happened around this same era with Aretha Franklin. Aretha herself would say in later years that her very early work, don't even bother listening to it. And then when she hooked up with Atlantic Records and Amit Erdogan as a producer, then Aretha's roots in church music and gospel music were allowed to flourish and it really took off. That formula or that trap that some of these female singers from this era got caught up in um, i guess dolly parton in her early situation with porter wagner would be another example but that starts to break a little bit in the late 60s mavis staples is recording at Stax records in memphis they're a little smaller more independent so you don't get that formula business approach and mavis is allowed to just grow and become the extraordinary singer that she is. The other example of that mold kind of breaking, I think, is in the early 80s with Annie Lennox. And if you're looking at kind of a timeline of these great female singers, you have Patsy, you have Aretha, you have Mavis, and Annie Lennox herself very publicly gets the Aretha Franklin seal of approval through the 80s and beyond. They work together. They have a good friendship. 
And if Aretha comes out and says, hey, I like that singer, you have done something mighty well at that point. So number 15, Patsy Cline, her three signature songs, her three big hits, but really the whole album, fantastic. And Patsy has the skill as a singer and the band and the production to help back it up that she takes on some of these kind of unusual for her covers and really turns them into something interesting that makes you forget the original version for three and a half minutes. A fantastic record all around. She deserves to be on any all-time great list for almost any type of music. Patsy Cline, Showcase. Oh, I met him there in a border town He vowed we'd never part Though he tried his best to settle down Now I'm alone with a broken heart And that's going to take us to number 14 on the list. You know, as Jim mentioned when we started talking about Patsy Cline, Rolling Stone at this point in their list, they finally start getting some things right. Certainly, that continues here with the number 14 album on the list, which is I Am What I Am by George Jones, released in September of 1980. Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about George Jones and your thoughts on this record? George, wow. The voice of the Velvet Possum. Uh, the most extraordinary singer in country music. When I think about George Jones and what he does, you have these little three-minute operas. You have a voice that goes from a whisper to a one-voice choir. You have a voice that goes from deep low notes to incredibly angelic high notes. He stopped loving her today It placed a reef upon his door And soon they'll carry him away He stopped loving her today And maybe you can tell where I'm going with this as soon as I said three-minute opera, but the only other singer that reminds me of George Jones and, and Jones of him is the human opera Roy Orbison. And Jones is really in that rare company. They're both guys where as soon as you hear them, you know who it is. You know that they're going to take you on an emotional roller coaster. You know it's going to be sad and tragic you know it's going to be glorious and beautiful and epic. And you know all of this is going to happen in roughly three minutes. He is, he's the voice. Uh, at this point, you know, 1980 for George Jones, uh, for a little background, he was in the Marines for three years in the early 1950s. He spent the mid-50s getting himself established as a regional favorite in the South. And he was packaged on a lot of Louisiana hayrides with Johnny Cash. In 1959, he breaks out on a national level with White Lightning. Me and my old pappy, and he had him still. He brewed white lightning till 
till the sun went down And then you'd fill him a jug and he'd pass it around Mighty, mighty pleasing, pack his corn squeezing Well, I this song, it's about moonshining and the feds chasing you, and it's got this kind of funny vocal bit in it, but it's a pretty good song. And later on, George takes that formula, that kind of rockabilly shake of white lightning, and he writes a song called Love Bug that's a hit for him in the mid-60s. It's kind of a nod to the style of his good friend Buck Owens. He also has a pretty decent hit in the mid-60s with Races On. Now the race is on and here comes pride up the backstretch. Heartaches are going to the inside. Hot tears are holding back. They're trying not to fall. My heart's out of the running. True love scratched for another's sake. The race is on and it looks like heartaches. And the weather loses all. He only has one true solid number one charting hit through the 60s and he's drinking a lot it's getting a lot worse he spends part of the 70s never showing up for concerts he has a incredible toward love affair and then marriage to tammy wynette and by the mid to late 70s all of these things have kind of fallen apart on him He's drinking to the point where if you hide the car keys, he's going to get on the lawnmower to try to get out of the house and get some drink. So this record is often referred to as the great comeback for him in 1980. These are the reasons why. A lot of close but not quite hits in the 60s, and the 70s was alcohol, failed marriages, and just not showing up to his own concerts. But when you listen to I Am What I Am, it's very easy to remember why he's the great voice and why, despite this long soap opera list of troubles, even for a country singer, this is an impressive list of personal difficulty. And then you hear he stopped loving her today. The song opens with the guy saying he promised to love her, you know, his whole life. The woman says, well, you'll get over me eventually. You know where this is going. He said, I'll love you till I die. She told him you'll forget in time. As the years went slowly by. She still prayed upon his mind. It's going to happen at the end of the song. He does love her his whole life, and he stops loving her today because he's dead. That's the power and the poetry of George Jones. And I, I know Chris is not going to argue with me on this one, um, but please do fill us in on what you think here chris well you're certainly correct no argument from me on any of the points that you made um you mentioned that jones missed a lot of concerts uh leading up to this period uh in his life uh, at one point he actually took on the nickname no show jones it was 
almost as common for him not to show up to a an announced gig as it was for him to show up he just he couldn't for various reasons both personal and substance related he just wasn't making a lot of dates that he needed to make he couldn't deal with it and when you listen to this record and jim's right this is a comeback this is his first top 10 album in five years it has his first number one single in six which was he stopped loving her today when you listen to this record you can hear all of that pain in his voice he doesn't really even need to go into detail in the songs for you to hear what he's been going through you know he kind of takes on the characters that he's singing about and it paints the picture of what his life has been like uh in recent memory at this point a lot of the songs on this one revolve around drinking but not just like hey let's go out and have a few beers and have a good time drinking we're talking george jones levels of drinking here you know he he is he has one of the worst alcohol problems ever one of the worst substance abuse problem problems because at some point in the 70s he starts doing massive amounts of cocaine the fact that he lives through this is a miracle it really probably says a lot about the patience and professionalism of billy sherrill uh the producer for this record you know billy had to do a lot of these songs over session after session after session because jones just could not get them down you know he wasn't completely divorced from all of his troubles at this point so just being able to work with him long enough to put something together became a challenge but it was a challenge that that billy sherrill mastered when i listened to i aged i've aged 20 years and five as i look in the mirror this morning on some dirty old restroom wall it took a while to realize it's really me there inside cause i've aged 20 that song just you can just hear everything that the man has been going through if that song doesn't move you practically to tears then i don't know what's wrong with you uh i will say that the willie nelson fan in me of course loves the cover of good-hearted woman she's a good-hearted woman in love with a good time and man him in spite of his ways that she don't understand um and i guess of course it would be remiss not to mention that a number of members of the a-team feature here as well uh pete drake on pedal steel we have pig robbins on piano who also played on white lightning as you mentioned earlier uh, the song you mentioned earlier um bob moore on bass we have Charlie McCoy on harmonica, and we also have Henry Strelecki on bass on some tracks here. Overall, I I really have a hard time arguing with Rolling Stone on this one as well. I don't know 
I, I don't know that I would necessarily consider this George Jones' best record, but I don't disagree so vehemently that I think this choice is wrong. It's a good record by the best singer ever to grace the genre of country music. And I really think this is one that if listeners aren't familiar with it, dig into it, listen to it. Of course, you're going to know if drinking don't kill me, her memory will. You're going to know he stopped loving her today. You might not know all of the other songs on here, but you're not going to be upset when you get to know them. Uh, it does feature a song by uh, our good friend Tom T. Hall, I'm Not Ready Yet. Uh, and it's it's also got quite a number of songs on here that were written by folks who just have serious country music credentials. You know, we have a song by Dennis Lend. We have Bobby Braddock and Curly Putman on the uh, title track. So do yourselves a favor, go pick this one up, put it on, listen to it on repeat until it's part of your DNA. George Jones, I am what I am. This is different from the George Strait or the Roseanne Cash situation because when you listen to this record, you can't really pin it down to a certain year or a certain era. It's just universal. It's timeless. That's the beginning of the process of how you identify a classic. Well, after a few really good entries on the list, Rolling Stone goes back to being Rolling Stone, trying to talk about country music. And at number 13, they give us Randall Lambert from 2016, The Weight of These Wings. Neither Chris or I were really familiar with her or her work at this point, but we did listen to it, we did look into it, and Chris is going to tell us what we have concluded. Okay, so this one is a more modern entry on the list. This album was released in November of 2016. Um, Jim is absolutely correct here in that neither of us were very familiar with Miranda Lambert or her work. Uh, I, I certainly, I knew the name. I knew she was a relatively well-respected, more modern country artist, but I, I would be lying if I tried to pretend like I had listened to her music on any extensive level prior to listening to this album a few times to prepare for this episode. Now, before it sounds like we're getting too harsh, I do want to say that I actually came to enjoy this record quite a bit. Um, there's just a lot that I like here. I do enjoy kind of the blend of the new with the old on this one. There's more modern arrangements with the instrumentation than you would hear on a lot of classic country albums. would listen to this one i would really find myself getting caught up in it and enjoying it now that doesn't mean that i think it belongs on a list of the 20 greatest albums of country music i i don't know that it belongs anywhere on any list of the top albums in country music uh i just don't think it's that good but i do think it's good 
Uh, there's a, another thing that I really enjoyed about this one, and that's the fact that both Pig Robbins and Matt Chamberlain uh, play on this record. That solidifies my love for a lot of things that are uh, musically related. Um, uh, Pig, we've obviously talked about a bit in this episode. Uh, he was the uh, piano player uh, who was a member of the A-Team. Matt Chamberlain, Matt was actually the second drummer in Pearl Jam. So after the original drummer, Dave Cruzen had left, Matt Chamberlain joined the band. He was only in the band for about three weeks, but that was actually enough time to be in the video for the song Alive. When I listened to this, one thing that kind of kept playing around in my mind was how much it made me realize that I prefer the shorter LP format from back in the vinyl album days. It's easy to put on something that 30 or 35 or 40 minutes and listen to it on a drive to work or while you're doing housework. Whereas when you have something that is well over twice that length, as long as three times as some LPs, it's just not the same experience. It's hard to listen to something like this through in one sitting unless you don't have much else going on. So it really kind of drove home the fact that I prefer the shorter length of most albums. Again, I don't think that detracts from it in terms of my enjoyment level, uh, you know, as far as the actual music itself goes, but it certainly does detract from my love for it as a finished product. Jim, why don't you tell us what you think about this one? Well, I think it's a good record. Uh, it is a little bit long. It's 24 tracks and you could probably edit that down a little bit more miranda uh she is one of the big not only commercially successful country stars in the last 15 years or so but she's also racked up quite a bit of critical acclaim and i think for musicians that are trying to do her type of thing in country music over the last 15 20 years I would rather listen to her over somebody like Shania Twain or certainly Taylor Swift uh, because Lambert is writing a lot of her own songs. You know, Swift does as well. But Lambert seems to have a little bit more of a reflective thought process. It, they're poppy songs. They're radio-friendly songs. But the stories and the lyrics are pretty good. <laughs> singer-songwriters that you can have radio-friendly, commercial, successful, pop-sounding stuff, and it can still be really good quality storytelling and good quality lyrics in, in writing. Um, how many times have you heard a catchy Warren Zevon song on the radio, and then you stop and think, oh, geez, the depth of the songwriting. And I'm not putting Lambert in that category yet. She's still working on it. But Again, you can have good quality stuff and stuff that you want to roll down the window and sing along to 
and those things can happily coexist. Part of the reason I don't see this as one of the top 20 all-time country albums, and hey, ride listeners, I'm not trying to force you to do any math, but this record has been out six years. Uh, easy enough to write down six years on a piece of paper and then write down all time next to it. And I'm not good at math. And that immediately speaks to me of, well, we wait, maybe we should let this, you know, simmer for a bit, come back in 20 years and see if we're still talking about it. Especially since we just talked about a Patsy Cline record from 60 years ago and a record by Patsy that is a half hour long. So at this point, we have Miranda with a six-year-old record and 24 songs ahead of Patsy on the list. You see why Chris and I have several bones to pick with Rolling Stone. Uh, again, like we were talking about with George Strait, this is a good record for its time. And some of the songwriting is just really damn catchy. I've been listening to one of the cuts on here a lot called Ugly Lights. It's basically the story of a woman sitting in a bar at closing time, night after night after night, watching the closing time routine of two people. It's like, oh, crap, bar closed in 10 minutes. I better walk out of here with someone. And she just kind of sits back and comments on watching that ridiculous parade unfold. When the Romeo, then Juliet, the bum This song kind of hits me in a funny way because near the DePaul campus, when I was a student, there was a bar called Durkin's and I would often sit in there and kind of see a similar situation unfold. And it is hilarious because when those lights come on right before the bar closes, you see a real look of surprise on a lot of people's faces because they thought their night was going one way and then it got light out and I'm not sure if I want to go through with this all of a sudden. Um, I'm not sure that I want to go through with having Miranda Lambert on this list. Rolling Stone puts it at number 13. Again, catchy, pop, good quality songwriting. You want to roll down the window and sing along, but let's come back in a few years and take another look at this and see Certainly how it ends. Not the kind of thing that you'd expect to hear from the editors of music magazine who should know better. You know, is this an enjoyable album? Yes. Without a doubt. Is it good? Yes. Without a doubt. Is it in the top 13 country music albums of all time? I'll eat a bug. If it is, there's no chance. So this is going to take us to Rolling Stone's 12th place entry on this list, uh, Why Not Me, which was released by the Judds in 1984, uh, October 15th of 1984, if we want to be precise. Now, Rolling Stone refers to the Judds as the greatest female duo 
in country music history. Jim, do you agree with Rolling Stone here? You know that thing when your parents tell you if you don't have anything nice to say, just keep your mouth shut and sit in the back? Um, wow. Uh, the Judds, the mother-daughter team, Naomi and Winona, they are good singers. They have great voices. They sound beautiful together. They're not the Everlies, but they do have that beautiful we are related by blood type harmony. And, you know, give them credit for that. They're very good at that type of thing, but they didn't invent it. They're very good at something in the 1980s, and they're making a lot of money at something that was invented in the late 1920s by Sarah and Maybell Carter. And when Rolling Stone says that Naomi and Winona Judd are their top women's duo in country music, I have to remind them with great enthusiasm that they are mostly a rock and roll magazine that has good political interviews and good movie reviews on the side. But it's incredibly short-sighted. It's incredibly downright disrespectful to the Carters when you hand that greatest title over to, again, two great singers, but this is 1984, and they're capitalizing on something that was invented in 1927. Sarah and Maybell, incredible singers. Maybell, we already know, is the first great guitar player in country music, invented the Carter Scratch, something guitar players of all sizes and shapes are still pursuing. It's just not a fair comparison. But if you're a magazine that doesn't want to appear to be a dinosaur from 50, 60 years ago, you're going to go in this direction, and it's understandable. The other thing here, in fairness to the judge, is I'm not the audience they were ever trying to get. Uh, Friends, same thing, that TV show. Never saw it, don't care, and they don't care. You know, again, I'm not the target audience. The Judds had a ton of success, critical and commercial, and never had a peep out of me until today. So as Chris has pointed out, these lists are incredibly subjective and sometimes downright horse hockey. Uh, You have me several times. I've said that the lists are as much fun to take apart as they are to put together. I'm going to stick my neck out on this one. It's just hardcore historical fact that you do not compare any other female country artists to Sarah and Maybelle Carter. And I think if you went through the years and asked Loretta and Patsy and Dolly, they would tell you Tammy Wynette. They'd all tell you the same thing. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. There's the Carters. And then there's the rest of us. And we are grateful to them for breaking down the door. So, yeah, there were a couple big hits on this one. The title track, Why Not Me, and Love is Alive. And again, I'm not their intended target. So if you like this sort of thing, great. Enjoy it. Be glad that you are part of a fan base for a very successful country music act. But number 12 in the all-time greats ever, and 
putting them above the Carters? No, 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 no. You've been looking for love all around the world. Baby, don't you know this country? Girls still free. Why not me? Will you finally come down to your old hometown? Your Kentucky girl's been awake. So it's a maybe then. Well, Chris, like I said, if you don't have anything nice to say, I, you know what? You take it from here. I'm going to go wait in the car. (laughs) So I think we'll have a slight disagreement here, uh, which again is fairly rare for the hayride. Um, I will say that, do I think this belongs on a top list for country music albums? No, I don't. Uh, Certainly not in the top 20. If we were to expand that list out, I think I would find a place for this one somewhere. Uh, I don't know how deep the list would need to go. Uh, I suspect it's closer to 100 than 50. But to me, this this is overall just a really good, really enjoyable album. In fairness, at the time, I did not like the Judds at all. Uh, when they were active, I, again, I was also not the target audience that they were shooting for. This would have been the period of my life when I was constantly just soaking up all of the Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings albums that were in the house, certainly not listening to country radio so I could hear, uh, Naomi and Winona. Having said that. Uh, when I listen to this album now, and for the last several years, I have gained an appreciation for what they were able to do. To me, I guess we'll say this album in general, and the Judds in particular, it's kind of like the culmination of what the industry was shooting for when they started releasing albums like Seven Year Ache by Roseanne Cash like Straight from the Heart by George Strait. This is sort of the product that the industry was hoping to produce that would sound, you know, authentic enough for country music fans and pleasing enough to pop audiences so that they could try and draw from both worlds. I've been working my fingers to the bone. It's a girl's night out. Honey, there ain't no doubt. I'm on a dance every day. The record does contain three number one hits, uh, the title track, Girls Night Out, and Love is Alive. Harlan Howard actually co-wrote the title track, Why Not Me. Something you've actually mentioned uh, back in the Murder Ballads episode when we were talking about El Paso, 
you referred to Marty Robbins' singing style there uh, as similar to something like you would hear in Cool Water by uh, the Sons of the Pioneers, where at the end of the line, vocally, the range goes up. You've been looking for love all around the world, David, don't you know? the fact that they used a very stripped down recording process when they were making this album it was just a band in the studio so you don't have you know a couple of dozen studio musicians each playing on a track or so you had a band that was playing live in the studio um i also enjoy the cover of endless sleep which fits into the teen tragedy subgenre that we've talked about on past episodes. Uh, originally, that one was done by rockabilly singer Jody Reynolds in 1957. I also find it interesting that the final single from this album, Love is Alive, uh, was released in May of 1985. Their next record doesn't come out until October of 1985. And everything that had been released on this one had gone to number one. So I find it interesting that they decide not to get anything else out from this album. Uh, presumably a label decision, uh, whether or not they thought that there was just nothing else that was good enough or that they were, you know, they felt it was too risky to break the string of number ones. I don't know exactly what the driving force was behind this decision, but it seems like a pretty sure bet that somebody at the label just said, no, 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 let's get the next batch of hits together and get those out. Up next at number 11, Rolling Stone bounces back a little bit and they give us a record that we have talked about a lot on this program and will continue to do so. It should be higher on their list. But at number 11, we have from 1968, Johnny Cash live at Folsom Prison. Chris, why do we love this one so much? Why do the Hayride listeners know that we love this one so much? Well, I mean, it's featured in two of our episodes to date. And since we're really only on episode three, although it will be the fourth one we release, uh, that should say something about it. You know, it's hard to recall in hindsight, but we talked about this a little bit originally. This was, to some degree, a hope for salvation. You know, Cash had recently gotten clean from his amphetamine addiction, but his career was nowhere near as clean as his health was at this point in time. So he had hit number two, uh, with a single, Rosanna's Going Wild. But that was really the exception at this point in Cash's career rather than the norm. So at this point, we're two years beyond his last number two, four years since his last number one. And the man is just hoping to be able to, to pull out of the tailspin that his life and his career have been in. Uh, this was his first live album. You talked about this at length in the bonus episode 2.5 when we talked specifically about the two Cash prison albums uh, at Folsom and at San Quentin. But 
the crew did an amazing job of capturing the vibe on this live record, which was not an easy thing to do using the technology of the time. Um, also, this was the last record with the Tennessee Three. We mentioned this last time as well, but Luther Perkins died just a few months after this one came out. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. Um, Jim, obviously, you are by far the bigger expert and fan when it comes to cash. So why don't you tell the fans what you love about this one? Well, everything. Um, there have been a lot of times over the years, Paul McCartney tells a story where he comments that people have said, oh, the Beatles' White Album is too long or too this or too that. And he just kind of leans back in the chair and says, look, it's the Beatles fucking white album, end of story. And that same genius point of view applies to Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. If you want to say, well, it's this or it's that, or it's Johnny singing about jail again and again, I have one thing to say to you, and pardon my language, but it's Johnny Cash fucking live at Folsom Prison. End of story. We had mentioned earlier in other episodes that this is what happens to go back to the power of Maybelle Carter and now her daughters, especially June. They help Johnny revive his personal life, and June certainly helps Johnny revive his personal life in a big way. Maybelle oversees Johnny's journey to sobriety, Johnny and June finally get together, and that love affair that was the worst kept secret through the 60s, you know, they wind up getting married. Johnny is so confident, so strong, so capable, and so incredibly badass that, yeah, you go to a prison like Folsom, you record a live album in front of the inmates, you do it early in the day to make things even more complicated. Musicians prefer to work at night. It is the last record with the great Luther Perkins on guitar. Johnny, to the inmates, he's not talking down to these folks. He serves up two great unsuccessful jailbreak songs with send a picture of mother and the wall you get a guy very slowly realizing he's about to be hung in 25 minutes to go you get a lot of musical support from june and from the carter family here it's i don't get why they put it only at number 11 um it's pretty obvious at this point in six string hayride history that I could talk about this record and Cash himself to the point 
where any James Joyce book would seem like a quaint little jingle, but the man is just that worthy of the praise. The music, the work, the singing, the songwriting will continue to dominate any conversation about any type of music for decades to come. It is bleeping Johnny Cash at bleeping Folsom Prison from 1968. Please go out and buy it right now. Hey, looky under coming, coming down that railroad track. It's that orange blossom special, bringing my baby back. Buy two copies. Give one to a friend. Yeah. Maybe you'll start a podcast someday. All right, folks, we've hit number 10 now on the Rolling Stone list of the all-time 20 best country albums. And give me a second here to have several strokes and a seizure or two. But Rolling Stone, after giving us Johnny Cash live at Folsom Prison at number 11, at number 10... They are giving us from 2008, Taylor Swift's Fearless. I was jogging, listening to Spotify. Casually browsing iTunes. Flipping through the radio. And I heard this new song that I loved. I loved. I looked to see who it was, and that's when the vertical hit. It was Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. The whole room started spinning. I felt nauseous. I don't like Taylor Swift. I know I don't. We're going to have a moment of silence. And Chris, can you um, can you make any sense of this? I mean, let's be honest. This one makes the list solely due to the fact that this is a non-country music magazine's list. Hi, I'm neurologist Dr. David Doctor. Over the last one month, realizing you love Taylor Swift has become the leading cause of vertigo in adults. That's why now, there's Swiftamine, the fast-acting antihistamine tablet that's pink and bubbly, just like Taylor herself. Now, I do recall early Taylor Swift being on some of the award shows and whatnot. And they would kind of refer to her using some version of country music's newest darling or whatever. I just don't hear it. And, and I, I should point out that I have a 14 year old niece and about nine years ago or so, she spent quite a bit of time with my wife and I, and like a lot of kids who were at that age, you know, she was five when I, when I, in the time frame I'm talking to. So from there on up to like 10 or 11, she was a big Taylor Swift fan. So there was a lot of Taylor Swift music getting played in the house. And I like Taylor Swift's music for the most part as pop music. But the early stuff that they want to call country, I mean, yeah, okay, it's some sort of country pop stuff. It's okay for what it is. I don't even know if this one belongs in a top 10 list of Taylor Swift albums. 
I don't like this record at all. I I don't like how slick it was designed to sound. I don't like how overproduced it is. I just don't like anything about it. In fact, I, I generally prefer Taylor Swift's voice. But even here, I, I really didn't. I really didn't even like her voice on this record. I just don't, I, there's no redeeming qualities to this one. When you said, this is a music magazine trying not to sound like a dinosaur. That's why this album is on here. Jim, why don't you tell us why this one's a piece of garbage? Well, Chris, while you're reminding us to take out the trash, let us also remind our environmentally conscious friends and music lovers to participate in whatever your local recycling program is. Uh, especially if they're going to recycle your Taylor Swift CDs. I don't have to really go out of my way to describe not liking her music because we've already made that super obvious. There are a few things that I think she deserves some fair credit for. Uh, throughout pop music, you have had periods for that preteen audience where they're really past the Sesame Street songs, but they're not, you know, quite into teenage music yet. And a long time ago, Hermits Hermits and Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas filled that kind of void. And at one point when I was a little kid in the 70s, the Bay City Rollers filled that void. And now, you know, if you're 10, 12, 13 years old, Taylor Swift is filling that void for you. And there's one specific thing in her music a little bit, in her interviews and her public comments quite a lot. And I, my daughter's 15, so this is something I really do appreciate from Taylor. She takes a very active and public stance against bullying and bigotry and giving kids a hard time because they're shy or because they read more than they party or because they dress funny. Like Lady Gaga... Taylor is using her platform to try to help confidence and self-image in young girls. And I that deserves respect. That's just decent use of a celebrity's public platform. And while she's doing these things, she doesn't sing. So it kind of doubles the positive public impact that these activities of hers uh, has and again like i said for younger girls she is she's a confidence builder she speaks out against bullying and she's not making records while she's doing these things so if we can just get her out on the street more doing these public service things that she's proven to be very good at we can keep her out of the studio and off the tour bus and folks here at the hayride that's the plan i took my daughters to a taylor swift concert i did not want to go I do not get it. But as soon as the concert started, I was on the ground. My daughter said I was slurring my words and that those words were, girl can write a song. Thank heck for Swift to me. I never got into Taylor Swift because in interviews, she's always like, I'm Taylor Swift. It's like, no. Then the other day, I found myself humming Shake It Off and I got so dizzy, I fell into traffic. Rolling Stone gives us at number nine, an incredible singer, Randy Travis, his first record, 1986, Storms of Life. Chris, what say you? Well, I say that 
This is a good record. I actually like this one a fair bit. Um, Randy Travis is one of those guys that has a very identifiable and unique voice. He's got a very identifiable phrasing. So as soon as you start listening to him, it's quite evident who you're hearing. Uh, there's a reason that he was incredibly successful from the 80s into the 90s and, and a bit beyond that. We'll circle back and talk about whether or not I think this record belongs on the list. But I will say that the Randy Travis story itself is, it's a good one. He decides that being a singer is something that he wants to do. Uh, as a matter of fact, in 1978, he gets uh, signed to a label called Paula Records, which was a rather small label. Uh, he did release a few singles on that label. Uh, he released a single called uh, Dreamin' in April of 1978. Uh, then in September of that same year, he released She's My Woman. That one actually did hit the top 100. It peaked at 91. But essentially, his career was not really going anywhere. So in 1982, he moves to Nashville. And while he's in Nashville, he gets a job at a nightclub as a, a cook and a dishwasher. And pretty soon, he's actually performing in the club and then between sets he's going back and washing dishes and still you know essentially doing grunt work um i believe that he was also part of the scene at the bluebird cafe in nashville that was a local area where uh some performers would get together and they would audition material for one another you know they're playing in front of an audience but really they're playing for one another just trying to, you know, help one another out, find the best bits of their songs, find the songs work, songs that maybe need a little bit of retooling, songs that might be just shelved. And he gets into this scene. And so in 1986, which is four years after he's moved to Nashville and eight years after he signed his first recording contract, he winds up releasing uh, this record, Storms of Life, which is his debut album. And, you know, here's a guy who he's really had to persevere along the way to get where he is at this point. As a matter of fact, after he had signed uh, his recording contract, with Warner Brothers, which this album came out on, he had released uh, the song On the Other Hand as a single. And that was something that had been done a year prior by Keith Whitley on his 1985 album, L.A. to Miami. And I find it interesting that the single really didn't go anywhere. Uh, it made it to number 67 on the charts. So many lovers games I'd love to play with you on that hand there's no reason why it's wrong but on the other hand there's a golden band but then the album comes out and the label starts to put a little bit of promotional weight behind it. 
And they decide to go ahead and release, on the other hand, a second time. And this time it actually makes it all the way to number one. On one hand, I could stay and be your loving man. But the reason I must go is on the other hand. There's another number one song on here as well, uh, Digging Up Bones, which is actually a song I like quite a bit. Um, I just think it's a, a catchy tune and you know, it's a, it's a great song about a guy kind of reflecting back on pieces of his life and, uh, it's pretty introspective and I, I tend to gravitate towards songs like that, uh, songs that kind of make you think or reflect on different times, better times, you know, less good times. I just like that sort of, uh, theme, uh, especially in country music. So here we have a guy who, you know, again, he's eight years after he signed his first recording contract and he almost becomes just a smash sensation out of the gate. It's just the, the kind of the typical story of he becomes an overnight success after eight years of struggle. Um, I, the album itself, I enjoy the production value on it. It's really clean. Now that's because there are a ton of studio musicians that are playing on this one. Uh, in fact, our buddy Larry London, who we met during Seven Year Ache and have talked about a little bit since then, he plays on this as well. Um, and now, for my opinion of the record itself, I think it's a decent record for the time, but honestly, I don't find it overly inspiring to this day. It's not the kind of thing that I'm going to put on and really think wow they knocked it out of the park with this one i just kind of put this in the same category as some of the other records we've talked about be it straight from the heart uh, or seven year ache you know records that were good for what they were but all-time greats top 10 of all time i just don't think so uh what are your thoughts on this one jim uh, you know mostly i'm with you on this uh the guy is an incredible singer it's a real unique style. You can tell that there's a heavy George Jones influence and Travis doesn't quite have the breath or the range to go dramatically high like Jones would, but he's really excellent at mining that kind of lower smooth and silky range of the George Jones style. Uh, he really did have a, a troubled past. And like you said, it took eight years to be an overnight sensation before he was a dishwasher and a struggling musician. He had had several brushes with the law in the early seventies, had a very difficult relationship with his father, dropped out of high school and had a little bit of a thing for stealing cars. So music is really something, you know, similar to the Merle Haggard story where you have somebody who's, dabbling in crime and looking at spending a lot of time in the correction system developing their musical talent is the thing that really pulls them out of that and gives them a better choice and like chris said june of 1986 now all of a sudden you know overnight success storms of life it's an impressive record if i was doing a top 50 i think this would be in it 
that's my little bit of disagreement with my co-host here. Uh, it was impressive because he had a number one with this record in both Canada and the United States. He did have two number ones and a number two single from this. I think Digging Up Bones is, God, it is a really, really sad song. When I first saw the title, I thought, ooh, this could be another good creepy murder ballad. And no, it's basically a guy in his attic going through the boxes, the, the physical souvenirs of the regrets in his life. I read some more love letters right up till the break of dawn. Yeah, I've been sitting alone, digging up bones. Then I went through the jewelry and I found our wedding rings. I put mine on my finger and I gave yours a fling. Across this lonely bedroom of our recent broken home Yet a night I'm sitting alone, digging up bones It's a rough ride. You can almost hear the record player crying with this one. It's um, it's a fine job with the delivery. It's And it really has that emotional heft that a lot of the old Steve Goodman songs had. And I think that's a real credit to both the songwriting and the way that Travis delivers it. The other song on here that I really like a lot is There Will Always Be a Honky Talk. And it's kind of a crowd-pleasing type song, but it's a good one. It's fun. It's got a nice honky-tonk shuffle. It's very optimistic. He predicts that, you know, by we get by the time we get to about 2083, he's like, there might not be Super Bowls anymore and a long list of other things he gives you. He says, but there's always going to be a bar with sad people and a record player in the corner. And God, I hope the man's right, because that would be a pretty cool thing. Uh, Travis suffered a stroke in 2013 and has been pretty much retired since then. I think that the guy has an extraordinary voice. And if you compare him to George Strait or some of the other good commercially successful singers of this 80s era, I think Travis rises above that a bit. Uh, Randy's got this really unique voice, like I said, similar to the George Jones school. And the recordings and the delivery and the whole sound of it, it's just one of those things that doesn't sound like it's the 80s. It doesn't sound dated. And that takes us back. You'll kind of notice if you really pay attention to a certain kind of music, you see that things are all not loose individual threads but one cohesive quilt i guess for lack of a better example you know if you pull on one thread you're going to pull on all of them and that takes us back to your friend and mine larry london the drummer because as we've talked about that's the foundation of any good groove of any good recording of any song the drums the rhythm that's really what's going to carry that whole thing and you know we've also talked about how important it is to have just a good solid backing band in these types of situations. And Larry got his start as a substitute drummer in the late sixties at Motown. And he did so well there that he came to Nashville and he got his big break doing the Tennessee Ernie Ford TV show, which got him the notice of Chet Atkins, who really encouraged him and gave him a lot of session work. There were several times where Chet would publicly say, Oh, Here's Larry London. He's my favorite drummer. And 
this guy, uh, tragically, he passed away at 48 years old. But, you know, Chris, when he was talking about the Nashville A-team, had talked about this kind of universal ability that they bring to any type of music. They know when to really kind of go off and they know when to lay back and let the song just do its job. And if you want to get a sense of not only how in demand Larry London was, but how incredibly versatile he was, this guy worked with Merle Haggard, Marvin Gaye, Al Green, Dolly Parton, Neil Young, Mike Nesmith, and Adrian Ballou from King Crimson. It's a recurring theme with these musicians through this episode, because if you look at a real huge amount of great classic country music, you're going to keep seeing these same names, the foundation, the essential players over and over again. And we are more than happy to mention their names because these are the people that don't really get the attention they deserve. And working for Randy Travis in the summer of 1986 on Storms of Life, they do a pretty good job. It doesn't belong top 20, but if somebody told me it was in their top 50, I wouldn't argue with you. Yeah, and I do agree with you that There'll Always Be a Honky Tonk Somewhere is a really good song. That's just a really entertaining romp through just comparing how some things change and some things remain the same. Yeah, you really hope that, you know, there will never come a time where you can't find anywhere with a little bit of drink and a little bit of friends and a little bit of music and you know that's cornerstone of civilization folks nothing lasts forever except one thing i know there'll always be a honky tonk with a jukebox in the corner Someone crying in their beard and Well, folks, this is a nice long episode for a nice long list. You're going to get hungry again. Here is recipe number two, Chris. So next we're going to do John Carter's Magic Red Cabbage. Now, magic is in quotes here. I've looked at the recipe pretty closely. I didn't see anything like weed in here but you know listeners you make it the way you want it the ingredients you're going to need two tablespoons of butter half a tablespoon of olive oil one medium red cabbage cored and shredded two teaspoons of chopped fresh ginger half a teaspoon of ground cloves half a teaspoon of ground allspice a third of a cup of sugar, a quarter of a cup of balsamic vinegar, and salt and black pepper to taste. Place the butter and oil in a large saucepan and heat it over a medium heat until it's bubbling. Add the cabbage and cook, stirring constantly until it begins to wilt. Add the ginger, cloves, allspice, sugar, and vinegar. Cover and cook 10 minutes, stirring occasionally. Remove the cover, Reduce the heat to medium-low and cook for about 30 minutes. During the last few minutes, increase the heat to medium and cook at a steady boil, stirring constantly until most of the liquid evaporates. Season the cabbage with salt and black pepper to taste. Remove the cabbage from the heat and let stand for five minutes before serving. 
This will make six to eight servings. Okay, and now coming in at number eight on the list is Come On Over by Shania Twain, which was released in 1997. Jim, why don't you tell us your thoughts on this record and where it belongs? Where this record belongs is far, far away from wherever I am. If you just want to refer back to the snarky things I said about Taylor Swift and skip over this part, go ahead. Not a bad idea. Uh, this is, I was joking with Chris as we were doing the research for this one, that it's kind of carnival pop. Rolling Stone claims that the album opens with a knockout punch. And yeah, they're right. The track is called Man, I Feel Like a Woman. And it is very upbeat. It's very catchy. It's pure power pop. And it is a knockout punch. But there's a huge difference between getting punched by Muhammad Ali and getting punched by a drunk guy at a carnival in Alabama. And this one is kind of the second. It lacks the class, the craftsmanship, and just the overall kind of quality that would come from Muhammad Ali. It's it's carnival pop. You know, if you're on the Tilt-A-Whirl and you've eaten a lot of fried things and had a couple beers, this is probably the most fun thing you can listen to while you're going on the rides. Let's go, girls. There's not a lot of substance or depth to it underneath. It's really sassy. It's really fun. If you're outside and you're with a bunch of people and it's warm out, this is a good kind of party record in, in that way. As much as that Gary Stewart record we talked about, Chris said, you know, this is a record where you want to sit down and open up a good whiskey and kind of let the stories unfold. This is a record where you want to be at the county fair and you want a deep fried Twinkie in your hand and you don't want to really listen too close to the record. You just want to go along for the ride. The producer and the guy who co-wrote a lot of the songs with Shania was her husband at the time, producer Mutt Lang. And he's more known for heavy metal work in the 1980s. He actually produced one of my favorite albums from the early 80s heavy metal period of acdc's back in black which i think is a fantastic album sound like a very polished sanitized acdc kind of the young brothers guitar in the background but you basically get sassy cheerleader doing the singing okay so you're a rocket scientist that don't impress me much so you got the brains and it doesn't get much deeper 
than what you would expect from sassy cheerleader it's like i said it's a lot of fun if you're at the county fair and you don't hear this record i'd be a little disappointed but it is not an all-time great unless you are a magazine trying to hang on to your aging subscribers and find the mid to late 90s to be a period of nostalgia they also it's one of those instances where they equate sales and cash with quality this sold 40 million records that is impressive that takes a lot of work it takes a marketing strategy it takes a business focus it doesn't necessarily take quality music and this record is the exact opposite of what folks say about the first velvet underground record the one with the banana on the cover where they only sold maybe 20,000 copies but everybody who bought that record started their own band and yeah this is way on the other end of the spectrum from that it is a fun carnival record it is not something that you know if i had to sit down and listen to this it's a trap chris i don't know uh, what can you add to that you know again i think this is going to be one of those situations where we're going to be pretty fully in agreement here i mean there's no denying that this album is a smash by any definition that you want to use i mean again as you mentioned it sold 40 million units and that's no small feat it's the greatest selling album ever by a female so uh, solo artist and it's one of the greatest selling albums ever by any metric <clears throat> i also have a lot of appreciation for mutt lang uh when i was growing up one of my favorite bands when i was a kid was def leppard and he produced a bit of their work so you know he's somebody who i knew more so than she when the uh, this album first came out now i do recall when this was released i mean this record was everywhere you'd hear it coming out of any car driving by on the street it felt like um the album went to number three pop and i want to make sure that listeners understand that i have a deep appreciation for pop music i really like very well produced pop so when i listen to a song like man i feel like a woman or you're still the one or that don't impress me much you know these are songs that i can enjoy as pieces of pop art they're they're catchy you can tap your foot to them uh, they're very well produced they sound good to this day th this one doesn't sound dated at all But I'm with you. If we're making a list of the top albums of all time, and uh, you know, after we're done deconstructing the Rolling Stone list, that's exactly what we're going to do. Something like this isn't going to go anywhere near my list. It's just very homogenized and generic. There's nothing really unique at all. 
about this album. And that's not a knock. I don't think they were going for uniqueness. They were going for product. This is the start of the fallout of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which deregulated the industry and allowed entities to own as many radio stations as they liked. And this has given us completely homogenized bullshit. All right. Rolling Stone really does a nice job with this next one at number seven from 1979. They give us Merle Haggard serving 190 proof. And I'm just absolutely fine, tickled with Rolling Stone doing this one at number seven. If you have a top 10 list of anything, it could be top 10 panda bears. You're going to have to have Merle Haggard on it because he belongs on every top 10 list ever. And Chris knows why. Yeah. So there are very few country singers or country musicians, country stars, however you want to phrase it, who I think resonate with their fans in the same way that Merle Haggard does. And I find there to be a number of reasons for this. And of course, like anything else, it's all relatively subjective, but you're talking about a guy who can find a way over the course of his career to essentially make everybody in the entire damn world think that he's singing to them. You know, maybe you have some left-leaning folks and they hear a song like Oki from Muskogee and they're like, yeah, he's one of us. And maybe you have some friends on the other side of the aisle who hear him singing Fight Inside of Me and they're like, yeah, he's one of us. And I think the truth is that in some ways, Merle is kind of all things to all people. He's the everyman of country music, but he does it in a really nice way. When dad would get the old guitar down and sing a family song, sing a family song, sing a family song. You know, the man always seemed to have something to say. Some of his songs were, you know, more just straight up honky tonk. He's got some of the best prison songs of all time. Uh, you know, he just really has a catalog that I think people should give a lot of attention and respect to. So here we have his effort from the middle of 1979. This one's released on May 18th of 1979. Um, I, I, I wasn't super familiar with it when I was younger. It's not a record that was in the house when I was growing up, for example. But it is one that I acquired fairly early on in my life. And, you know, I've made a point to you know, not exactly have it on repeat, but to keep it in a semi-regular rotation. So I listen to it every couple of months and I have for a long time. So the opening track, Footlights, uh, first of all, I, I really have always wondered if this was inspired by the incident where Johnny Cash smashed out the footlights at the Opry in 1965. Uh, I believe Jim will actually tell us a little bit more about that particular incident. Uh, 
when he's covering this one. The opening riff to that song is actually lifted straight from Lean On Me. It's the kind of thing you'd get sued for these days, but back then it was just sort of how you paid tribute to somebody that you thought had a great idea or that you admired or respected. The album itself only went to number 17 on the charts, but this was kind of a period in Merle's career where that wasn't a, a terrible showing at all. And like a lot of records that are sort of in this mid-chart placement when we're talking about Top 40. We spend a lot of time out on the highway Coming from some town played a long way After 30 years of knowing me the way you do You know I can't change and live the way you want me to But babe that red bandana tied around your auburn hair You look like you ought to be somebody's wife somewhere It's a really solid album all the way throughout. There are no hit single there are no smash hit singles on this uh, on this record. And as a matter of fact, there were four singles. Heaven was a drink of wine, I must have done something bad, my own kind of hat and red bandana. And as an interesting trivia aside, all four of those songs peaked at number four on the charts. Um, I, I think if I was going to make a top five Merle Haggard album list, uh, this would definitely be in that top five. It is, it is solid all the way through. I do really enjoy pretty much every single song on here. So Jim, why don't you tell us more about the Footlight Incident and your thoughts? on this on this record in general serving 190 proof by merle haggard i really think this is a fantastic record i think it's definitely his best record of the 70s i have a different merle haggard record on my list that we'll be talking about down the road but you were curious as to why rolling stone went with this one and i have a few thoughts about that it would be too obvious to pick something from that great late 60s run of the outlaw prison period with Mama Tried, Sing Me Back Home. I think that Poncho and Lefty in the 80s, that's really the next great period for Merle. I don't, actually don't know why they didn't pick that one, but in between those two periods, this is Haggard's by far best work 1979 serving 190 proof he spent a lot of time doing interviews and publicly speaking a lot about the songwriting which on this record is mostly his uh, he's got a few co-writing credits on it but it's mostly his work uh, this is the record in his career that he actually spent a lot of time discussing and explaining in interviews and you know with the press he was 41 years old at this point he mentions that on at least two songs in the record he is going through what he repeatedly would call a male menopause he was trying to get a handle on his drinking he was getting into therapy 
he was actually starting to give up cigarettes and take up marijuana at this point. So his life is in a, a lot of changes. And the songs are really full of kind of a lonely, angry sense of regret. He comments often in that theme of be careful what you wish for. But he's not being a crybaby. He's not whining about it. He's confessing it. He's owning it. He's saying, you know, this is how I feel. This is why he doesn't put it on anyone but himself. And it really begins with the opening cut, Footlights. I live the kind of life that most men only dream of. I make my living writing songs and singing them. A lot of people have wondered what the song is about. The actual story, if you read through the lyrics, is a man who has to get up and do one more show and then one more show and one more show. And he says, you know, I have a life most men only dream of. I write my own songs. I go out and sing my own songs. And from there, it's just a mountain of loneliness and a mountain of regret. The strong emotion, the angriness in the song comes from a real, true, awful event in Merle Haggard's life. He was just a few minutes away from being introduced to go out on stage and do a concert. And somebody backstage gave him the news that his musical idol, and very good friend, Lefty Frizzell, had just passed away. So Merle is getting the news that Lefty has passed. And the next thing he hears is, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Merle Haggard. He has commented on this in interviews. that It was just profoundly difficult to go out and play. And he felt really angry. And he felt like he was kind of pretending to be Merle Haggard, the entertainer. And... You know, internally, he was Merle Haggard, the man who just lost his friend. I throw my old guitar across the stage and then my bass man takes the ball. And the crowd goes nearly wild to see my guitar nearly fall. It's it's a really great record. Um, like Chris said, he did have four number four charting singles from this, and it's it, it's indicative of just how productive and prolific Merle Haggard is. Uh, it's it's a great record. Again, not his absolute best, but between the Outlaw period in the late sixties and the Poncho and Lefty period in the eighties. This is his best record, and you'd really enjoy listening to it. I highly recommend it. And now coming in at number six, we have Car Wheels on a Gravel Road by Lucinda Williams, which was released in 1998. This is one of those albums that really belongs in just about everyone's music collection. Um, you know, Lucinda Williams is 
an amazing performer and an amazing singer and songwriter. And honestly, one of my biggest musical regrets at this point is that I had the chance to see her live probably 16 or 17 years ago in Milwaukee. And for, and, and as a matter of fact, somebody offered me tickets and for a handful of reasons, I just couldn't make it. And I've regretted it ever since, but here to kick us off talking about the record, Jim, what do you have for us? This is a really, really great record. Uh, Lucinda Williams, 1998, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Sitting in the kitchen, a house of Macon, Loretta singing on the radio. Smell of coffee, eggs and bacon, car wheels on a gravel road. Uh, this is a record that I also have on my list. So let's pause a moment to be fair to Rolling Stone. While it is extraordinarily fun to kind of have a go at them because a lot of their list is goofy, there's roughly a third of their list and a third of my personal list are either the same artist or the same album, just in different spots. So for getting seven out of the 20 Fair play to Rolling Stone. I owe you guys a Coke. Uh, with Lucinda Williams, I did get to see her in Milwaukee about 20 years ago. Uh, she did a lot of the songs from this record. She was on a bill opening for Phil Lesh and Warren Haynes. It was a wonderful night of music. This record is a really gothic, southern, murky kind of record in the way that R.E.M.'s Fable of the Reconstruction is. creepy and dark in places and it's really joyous and almost sexy in places there's a really good hit single on this record told me baby one more time don't make me sit all alone cry while it's over no way but i can't let go i'm like a fish out of water a cat in a tree you don't even want to talk to me well it's over that's a really fantastic upbeat track and here in chicago when the record was new wxrt would play that song a lot and it gave lucinda a lot of play and a lot of attention very well deserved there's another song on here called right in time that if you remember some of those old chris isaac records and the kind of sultry videos and almost Tom Jones kind of sexiness that he would try to get into his records. I'd say Lucinda really nails it here with right in time. That's she really hits that kind of style. You can almost hear Tom Jones singing the song.
fantastic. The production of this record was really kind of tricky. Uh, Lucinda Williams had it ready to go and then got shifted around in some record label shenanigans and the record wasn't released until about 10, 11 months later. She also had a bit of a personality conflict with the co-producer, the very talented and fantastic Steve Earle, but their personalities, their styles just clashed. Lucinda was not very confident in her singing. She claims that Steve Earle wasn't particularly helpful and encouraging with that. He claims that he was trying to hurry up and get the job done because he was in between his tour schedule and they finished the record and the record's really good. And Chris, we've been talking this one a lot recently. Uh, what would you, what do you have for us? Yeah, I, I really think that this is a good example of where Rolling Stone reaches a little deeper, but they get it right. Um, I don't feel like they were just going for some sort of odd street cred when they put this record on the list. I think it's it's truly that good of an album. Um, I think a lot of people might be familiar with Lucinda Williams as the writer of the song that Mary Chapin Carpenter took to number four on the country charts, which was uh, Passionate Kisses. And, but honestly, if that song is all you know about Lucinda Williams, you really should do yourself a favor and go to your local record store, get on whatever streaming service that you, you'd use to listen to music, whatever it is, and sit down and listen to this one just front to back. I mean, first of all, you have some fantastic musicians that appear on this record. Uh, you have Amy Lou Harris, who we spent quite a bit of time talking about already uh, for performing backing vocals. Um, you have Rodney Crowell. You have Steve Earle, Charlie Sexton, Gerf Morlix. So some really high quality players on here. I think that this album is a really great showcase of Lucinda Williams' style. It's part country, part Americana, part rock, but it's all class. You're absolutely right. You nailed it with the Americana uh, comments with this record. This is within that same two-year period as the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack. And there was this big Americana craze in the late 90s, early 2000s. The Old Brother soundtrack is really brilliant, but it's celebrating the past of this type of music. And Lucinda Williams, 1998, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, she is looking forward. Well, folks, we're getting to the last five entries on the Rolling Stone Top 20 Country Records of all time. So let's just take a quick look back. At number 20, Roseanne Cash with Seven Year Ache. Number 19, George Strait, Straight from the Heart. Number 18, Gary Stewart, Out of Hand. Number 17, Loretta Lynn, Coal Miner's Daughter. Number 16, Tom T. Hall, In Search of a Song. Number 15, Patsy Cline, Showcase. Number 14, George Jones, I Am What I Am. Number 13, Miranda Lambert, The Weight of These Wings. Number 12, The Judds, Why Not Me. Number 11, Johnny Cash, 
live at Folsom Prison. Number 10, Taylor Swift, Fearless. Number nine, Randy Travis, Storms of Life. Number eight, Shania Twain, Come On Over. Number seven, Merle Haggard, Serving 190 Proof. Number six, Lucinda Williams, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. So that brings us to number five from 1999, the Dixie or Not Chicks with Fly. So here we have the fifth album from The Chicks, uh, as you mentioned, released in 1999. And this is definitely the height of their career, right? This is the follow-up to their smash breakthrough, wide open spaces. They are flying high. And here they release, you know, what they're hoping will be the furthering of what they've been building up to. And I do think it's a solid record. We talked about Earl in the uh, murder ballad episode. And there's a lot of other good songs on this album. Um, Sin Wagon is a good song. There's also a song on here called Some Days You Gotta Dance. And the interesting thing about this one is that originally it was done by a group called The Ranch, which was a short-lived trio that was founded by Keith Urban in the late 90s. And then Keith Urban appears here playing guitar on the chicks to enjoy not only the group, but also this record and the prior record, Wide Open Spaces, uh, quite a bit. I do think that there was probably some attempt by their label or their management or what have you to turn them into some sort of manufactured product. But what we learn a couple of years after this is released is that these girls are very much anything but a manufactured product. They essentially torpedoed their own career in 2003 uh, when we were in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq by at a show in England saying that they were, you know, not supportive of the invasion in any way and that they were ashamed that George Bush was from Texas. Now, these are not naive 
you know, naive girls who don't know what they're getting into or what they're saying. Uh, Natalie, uh, her father is Lloyd Maines, who is a longtime uh, musician in the Austin, Texas music scene. So, you know, she comes from this industry. She must know damn well what's coming when she says what she says. So, you know, they kind of fade into obscurity for a decade, decade and a half after that happens. Now, recently, they've they've made some comebacks. They perform with Beyonce. That was a very well-received performance. And then two years ago, they released their first album in some time, uh, Gaslighter. And the title track to that is just fantastic. But I don't see this album as being the fifth best country album of all time. Uh, you want to share your thoughts with the listeners on this one, Jim? Oh, sure. It is not the fifth best country music album of all time. I would put this record on the top 100 simply because of Goodbye Earl. You know, you have Shania Twain kicking out a very polished, processed, commercial, deliberately manipulating the audience type record to get you up and jumping up and down at a stadium show or at a county fair. And with the chicks, you have them planning the perfect unsolvable murder of an abusive husband. Different set of priorities. I would tend to agree with the chicks here. In country music, especially with female artists, in the 60s, you have Tammy Wynette and Loretta Lynn breaking down barriers by singing about birth control and divorce and not being willing to just stay at home and wait for the jerk husband to come back drunk. And you see the chicks kind of picking up on that attitude and taking it a little bit further and into a new generation. Again, I have a lot of respect for that. It's not the fifth best of all time. It is one of the better records of the 90s. And again, Goodbye Earl is a great piece of music. It's also a great piece of social commentary. and i hope the chicks continue to have a great career there's a lot of talent there they're good musicians they just haven't quite yet cemented an all-time great status so now taking another step up the number five ladder making it to number four on the list we have modern sounds and country and western music by ray charles which was released in april of 1962. hey good looking what you got cooking how's about cooking something up with me Sweet baby, don't you think maybe we could find us a brand new recipe? This album is groundbreaking for a number of reasons, but primarily because of who recorded it, where they were in their own career, and the reasons that they recorded it. So Jim's going to tell us what he thinks of this one. 
All right, Chris. Yeah, uh, Ray Charles, Modern Sounds and Country and Western Music. I absolutely love this record. No argument with Rolling Stone here. Um, to be honest with the audience, if Chris had agreed with me doing a top 21, I would include the Ray Charles record. It was really tough to leave this one off. Uh, it's a record I love a lot. I kind of figured since everybody else had it on their list, maybe I could get away with explaining it that way. In 1962, when this record comes out, Ray had spent the last 10 years being an absolute brilliant, solid R&B star and one of the great piano players of his era. It was just really funky swinging music. And then in 1962, without warning, here comes a record with a couple Hank Williams songs on it. He opens with a version of the Everly Brothers, Bye Bye Love. He does this incredible, lovely, lush, gorgeous version of I Just Can't Stop Loving You. And the choir and the arrangement, just go out and buy this record right now. Put the podcast on pause. We're okay this one time. And go out, buy the record, preferably at a local, small, independent record store. It's useless to say So I'll just live my life In dreams of yesterday uh, it, It's just really that amazing. And it's, it's so groundbreaking because he's taking a Hank Williams song, but it's still Ray Charles' piano, Ray Charles' voice. It's still R&B. What Ray is proving with this record is that great music is universal. Uh, I was at a Neil Young show once and people were yelling out, you know, all kinds of songs they wanted Neil to play. And eventually he comes up to the microphone and he says, it's all one song. And that's something that just really stuck with me. And the more I've studied music, the more I've listened to different types of music, that is one of the absolute best ways to explain it. Because, again, Ray takes Everly Brothers, he takes Hank Williams, and all of a sudden, it's Ray Charles. It's funky R&B, it's that great Ray Charles piano, it's those great Ray Charles backing vocals. Wow, modern sounds in country and western music. It the title sums it up perfectly. It's a fantastic record. Rolling Stone really got it right with this one. And Chris, what are your reasons for loving this record? Yeah, I have to agree with you that in many ways it felt like a crime to leave this one off of my my own list. I mean, this is where the magic happens. 
Sometimes an album comes along that's designed to drive new fans to a genre, and this is just such a record. You know, the the you know, as Jim mentioned, the way that Ray Charles performs these songs is very much in keeping with the way Ray Charles was known as a performer at that time. These are not necessarily country versions of these songs, but they are very much country music. You know, Ray Charles was a well-established R&B musician by this point in his career, but he was a very deep and very loving fan of country music. Now, when he made the decision to cut this album, he received negative feedback on the idea by damn near everyone, from peers to label executives. He was told by everyone, don't do this. It's career suicide. And yet, this album hits number one on the pop charts and stays there for 14 weeks. This is a man who wanted others to hear what he heard when he listened to this music. And when you hear Ray Charles sing these songs, and when you think about what he must have had to go through from a label and industry perspective to be able to record and release these songs, you know, to me, th there, that just shows something about country music, why it is that people feel about it the way they do and love it the way they do. And, you know, again, you, you don't have somebody who's just trying to copycat the way these songs were done prior. You have somebody who, you know, again, takes I Can't Stop Loving You and turns it into this orchestral, just amazing wave of sound. They say that time heals a broken heart But time has to steal since we've been apart yeah. Who takes Bye Bye Love, a very well-known song, and completely reinterprets it in this incredibly beautiful way. She was my baby Till he stepped in Goodbye to romance That might have been and it works incredibly well jim is right i'm hoping that by the time you're listening to my voice you've actually had to unpause the podcast to start listening to us again because you just ran to your local record store and bought a copy of this and if you haven't yet it's okay there's only three more albums after this one why don't you go out into the car Put us on in the car, drive to the record store, finish listening to us during your drive, buy this song, this album. You'll be done with us by the time you get there. Listen to the album on the way back. All right. Uh, it's time for those last three. Rolling Stone continues to stay on the right path with this one. From 1975, Willie Nelson, The Red-Headed Stranger. Uh, I... I have to tell you, I'm not super familiar with this record uh, until recent years. 
it did initially strike the record company as a demo and Willie felt differently. Chris is going to give you a real proper explanation of that. When Chris and I first met, going back about 20 years, I knew Willie Nelson as Patsy Cline's great songwriter and a guy who approached country and Western guitar with a nylon string jazz, almost flamenco kind of style. And I knew that he had a live touring band that, as uh, the great bass player Duck Dunn used to say, would turn goat piss into gasoline. Uh, they're a hell of a live act, similar to the Allman Brothers or the E Street Band. They're just, once they get out on the road, they raise holy musical hell, and it's brilliant. But a lot of the actual records and the depth of the catalog and the depth of Willie's own recordings, that's something that's really just come to me in the last 20 years because Willie Nelson, number one fan, Chris Wainscott, has been on a few long car rides with me, and he's been right about this every time. I guess the first thing I'm going to say is I'm going to send out a thank you to a mutual friend of mine and Jim's. Uh, Jim O'Brien from Austin, Texas. My prized possession for the last almost 20 years, actually 18 years, is a signed photo of Willie Nelson that Jim sent to me. Uh, I had it framed at a time in which having something framed was an almost unaffordable proposition just due to my financial circumstances. And yet there was no way I was not going to do that. Um, it hangs in my home. I look at it all the time. I can't say enough things about this man. Uh, Willie Nelson has been my musical hero pretty much since childhood. Uh, obviously, by the things I'm saying, it should be very evident that this record is going to appear on my own top 20 list in a rather prominent place. So I'm going to talk about this one a lot more when we get to the episode on my list. But I'll give you a few initial thoughts on it now. So as far as the actual recording itself, so this comes out in 1975. So Willie had a contract with Atlantic Records that had begun in 1973, and he released two albums under that contract, Shotgun Willie and Phases and Stages, that had quite a bit of success. And it led to him signing a contract with Columbia in 1975 that gave him complete freedom and control over his music. So when he was with Atlantic, he had transitioned from that kind of slick Nashville sound of the RCA records, which had been frequently produced by Chet Atkins, to the rougher sound that would start to define outlaw country. And Redheaded Stranger is kind of the culmination of his vision. Again, it started with his Atlantic contract, but by this point, he was given complete freedom over the recording and mastering, you know, the entire process. Uh, Jim had pointed out that the label insinuated that this sounded like a demo. And, and first of all, they're, they weren't wrong. If you take a look at what had been coming out before this, and then you take a listen to this, we're talking about two completely different things. Was the time of the preacher 
when the story began of the choice of a lady and the love of a man. As a matter of fact, it's fairly well documented that when he heard the record, <laughs> Billy Sherrill said, did he make this in his living room? It's a piece of shit. It sounds like he did this for about two bucks. It's not produced. And the label leaned on Nelson quite a bit to go back in and polish this one up. And as the story goes, eventually Waylon Jennings stepped in and said, no, his contract says he can do it his way. He's doing it his way. And so it came out as is. And we're talking about an album that goes to number one country and number 28 pop. So a huge hit um, under any, you know, ages that you want to put it. So the, 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 the record itself, it's, in my opinion, probably the, no, definitely the best country music concept album of all time. It tells the story of a man who kills his wife, and now he's running from everything, including himself. But he could not forgive her. Though he tried and tried to try. And the halls of his memory still echo her lies. It's interesting that an album like this can be this good when really there's only one true single from this album. There were two that were were released, but there's only one real hit from this record and that is what i would say is the definitive version of blue eyes crying in the rain in twilight glow i see blue eyes crying in the rain when we kissed by and part I knew we'd never meet again this is just it's one of those timeless records every single time I put this one on I discover something new you know I hear a little more bounce in Bobby Nelson's piano playing or I catch just a little more of the intonation that Willie was going for when he was really playing some jazz licks on this album. This one clocks in at 33 minutes and 30 seconds. So when I say you need to put it on and listen to it all the way through, it's not going to be that difficult to do so. Uh, much like most of Willie's records, 
you're just if you like willie nelson in any way shape or form if you like country music in any way shape or form i don't think anyone who who listens to this is going to say well that was a waste of time i think it has something for everyone remember folks now that we're getting to these last two entries on rolling stones not ours list of the top 20 all-time great country albums remember your list is always right your mom's list is always right your sister your dad your spouse your cat your dog their list is always going to be right too that's the nature of these things everyone is free to select one friend or relative that you can always say their list is wrong fair play to that but again as we've said throughout it is fun to make these lists it is fun to take these lists apart so cheers to making your own we're going to get into these last two now for the rolling stone top 20 list also if any listeners would like to email us their own top 20 list or top 10 or top five please feel free to do so at six string hayride at yahoo.com and that's the number six spelled out so s-i-x string hayride at yahoo.com and now coming in at number two we have dreaming my dreams by waylon jennings released in june of 1975. The record we just talked about previously, which was Redheaded Stranger by Willie Nelson, was released in May of 1975. So it's pretty clear to me that this two-month period is one of the best in history for the record-buying public. Uh, Waylon was an incredibly hardworking, prolific musician. Between 1965 and 1991, he has 96 songs that make the country record chart. That's extraordinary success rate um, a lot of this through the mid 70s is fueled not only by his talent but by his giant cocaine habit it's the mid 70s there's no way Waylon's the only one who's doing this we've all read different things about different records fueled by different wacky drugs during the 70s uh, the problem here with Waylon and the cocaine habit is it catches up with him two years later and federal drug agents bust him for intent to distribute cocaine. He does eventually kick his habit. He continues to make really great music through this time. Uh, this record is very kind of ragged and it's got that weird energy to it, but Waylon is trying to actively question and push separating his music from the very polished very showbiz nashville type culture of the time and just really get raw and kind of punk rock and just get back to really roots of country music he questions whether hank williams would do things the same way people are doing now would hank approve are we still in that proper spirit of hank williams somebody told me 
got it made Old Hank made it here We're all sure that you will But I don't think Hank done it this way no. I don't think Hank done it this way Look at When this first came out Stereo Review Magazine commented that Waylon is that unique and fantastic double threat where he's a wonderful singer and like his partner Willie Nelson also a fantastic guitar player and the work here is really great Waylon is kind of reflective and sensitive at times he's also still you know the juvenile delinquent kind of badass guy that he is in a lot of people's imagination Turns out a fantastic record. Chris, I know this one is a real favorite of yours. So this is another one that I'll talk about a lot more when we get to my episode. So first of all, this is at the beginning of what's going to become known as and take shape as the Outlaw Country Movement. The album is recorded at Glazer Brothers Studios. That's Glazer's and Tom Paul Glazer, who's going to become fairly well known about a year after this one comes out when he is one of the artists that's on the collaborative album wanted the outlaws uh that features songs by waylon jennings <clears throat> waylon's wife jesse coulter willie nelson and tom paul uh, as a matter of fact the big hit from glazer on that one is put another log on the fire written by, I guess at this point, pretty much friend of the podcast, Shel Silverstein. Dad says, that's the way it goes. Someone ate the baby. Someone ate the baby. What a frightful thing to eat. Someone ate the baby, though she wasn't very sweet. It was a heartless thing to do. The policemen haven't got a clue. I simply can't imagine who would go and... Eat the baby. Uh, it seems like we can't get away from mentioning the man. I think we've talked about him now on three of the first four episodes. Now, the record is actually co-produced by Waylon and Cowboy Jack Clement. As a matter of fact, Cowboy Jack does write one of the songs here. Let's all help the Cowboys sing the blues. But the album itself is made, in my opinion, by two things. Ralph Mooney's pedal steel and Waylon's vocal delivery. To me, there's so many songs on this album that come off almost as duets between those two. And give it away as much as I can To those that I'm fondest of Someday I'll get old I live to see it all through, but I'll always miss dreaming my dreams with you. I find it to be a really nice listening experience. If you, you know, Ralph Mooney is just a legend of pedal steel guitar, and he he's he does two decades with Waylon's band, and this is when they're really starting to get cooking. And there's just nothing not to love about his playing, especially here. If you listen to the opening track, Are You Sure Hank Done It This Way? 
it has this really almost frantic edge to it like a man in the depths of a cocaine binge and then you listen to the next song waymore's blues and it's kind of like somebody who's been up partying a little bit too long they're starting to lose a little their energy and come down uh, I, I don't mean that it's a bad song in any way by that it's just the vibe of the song and, and the, the album does tend to kind of alternate like that some up-tempo high energy some more laid back i'm trying to stay awake and get through this vocal um but every song on the album is strong uh as a matter of fact the other song that i really love on this one is the live recording that closes it out which is bob wills is still the king uh i love it because it talks about another you know really profound musician bob wills the king of western swing where you tip your hat to the ladies and the rose of san antonio i grew up on music that we call western swing it don't matter who's in austin bob wills is still the king if you're not familiar with Bob Wills, you will be on future episodes of The Hayride as we start to talk about him more. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you were thinking of taking your advice earlier and pausing the podcast while you ran to the store to buy the Ray Charles album, while you're there, grab something by Bob Wills because we're going to talk about him a lot in the future. Um, but I, I really do. I think this is a great record start to finish. I definitely think it's the best of Waylon Jennings efforts. Um, that's a pretty arguable point, especially when composing a list, but I don't think anybody would have this one too far outside of their top two or three Waylon records. Ladies and gentlemen, the moment we've all been waiting for. stone top 20 country albums of all time their selection from 1971 from one of the great queens of any kind of music dolly parton the coat of many colors back through the years i go wandering once again back to the seasons of my youth i recall of rags that someone gave us and how my mama put the rags to you i also have this one on my list in a different position so let's have chris talk about this one for a while well first of all yes kudos to rolling stone for crowning this as their number one album of all time while it's not in that position on my list it does make my list but I can't come up with a single argument ever to not make Dolly Parton number one at everything until the end of time. She's probably the most fantastic human being ever to live. There are so many reasons to love her. Her music, her philanthropy, her passionate, you know, taking up of causes that she believes in. There's just so many great things about Dolly the person, but let's talk about Dolly the musician. It's a great pick 
by Rolling Stone. And again, picking on them for putting it in a different position relative to another album on this list and a prior list is just quibbling. So let's talk about the record itself. So first of all, it's recorded in Studio B at RCA Studios in Nashville. Some of you will know what that means. Um, that was one of the more famous recording locations. Many top records were recorded there. Uh, Pete Drake plays some pedal steel here, and Pig Robbins plays uh, some piano here. We've talked about both of them as members of the Nashville A-Team. The songs here, so there's 10 songs on this album, and Dolly writes most of them with Porter Wagner contributing three. So all of the material is written by those two. And there's two things that really stand out to me when I listened to this album. And as a matter of fact, I listened to it one final time this morning, just in preparation, and it really solidified in my mind what I'm about to say. So you can take songs here, like the title track, Code of Many Colors, uh, which is about growing up in abject poverty as a child, but not really understanding what it means to be poor and having the feeling that you can be rich just by feeling content with what you have. And then you take a song like Early Morning Breeze, which is, you know, about starting your day, how beautiful it can be outside, how much there is to look forward to in a day. Those two songs have this innocence and purity about them. And they're just incredible songs. I open up my door to greet the early morning sun Closing it behind me and away I do run And then you add to that songs like Traveling Man, also written by Dolly, which is a song in which the narrator is having an affair with a traveling salesman. And then at the end of the song, her mother runs off with the traveling salesman. So there's this strange love triangle between the narrator, her mother, and a traveling salesman. Certainly a controversial choice at the time, I would imagine. And then the fourth track on this album is called If I Lose My Mind. And this song was written by Porter Wagoner. And it's a song where the narrator is in a relationship where her partner is forcing her to be a swinger and she's having a conversation with her mother essentially reflecting back on her childhood and how much she misses you know that time in her life and how she doesn't know how she's going to get through what she's going through now mama it's so good to be back home again I'm so proud to see that you are looking well Yes, I know that I look a little weary Oh, but mama, I have been through living hell 
so you have this dichotomy where you have these two songs with Coat of Many Colors and Early Morning Breeze that are just absolutely the most innocent and beautiful things you can imagine, contrasted by songs about strange, you know, love triangles between a mother, a daughter, and a salesman, and a woman who's being forced to be in an open relationship. So those two things kind of contrasted with me. And then at the same time, like I said, If I Lose My Mind is written by Porter Wagner. The very next song, the song that closes outside one, is The Mystery of the Mystery, also written by Porter Wagner. And this is a very deeply spiritual song. It's about somebody who is asking questions of their creator and how does life begin and where do we come from and what is our greater purpose? So... It's kind of like the the battle that we've mentioned at times on the Hayride, where country music is trying to balance out Saturday night and Sunday morning. So those two things really stuck with me when I started to listen to this record on repeat, uh, getting ready for this episode. And, you know, again, I listened to it one final time this morning, and those two things just really resonated. So, Jim, why don't you give us a few of your thoughts on this one? Let's put this episode to bed. We've taken Rolling Stone out behind the barn. I'm handing you the gun. Are you going to shoot him? Are you going to give him a stern warning? Maybe pistol whip him like in Goodfellas? Who can say? Uh, I don't think Rolling Stone did really well with this. I think it is a product of a magazine that's in the business of selling magazines to young Taylor Swift fans and older Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash fans. But in all fairness, and they certainly have a strong sense of uh, reason with this one, anybody that has this Dolly Parton record in their top 10, whether it's at one or whether it's at 10, you don't really argue because, you know, again, that's the, the kind of fun of this. You're glad that somebody else feels that strongly about this record. And that's, again, that's the fun payoff of these kind of debates and arguments. It's 1971. She is breaking away from Porter Wagner more and more with each record. This is her eighth album overall. She does write seven of the ten songs. The big song, obviously, is Coat of Many Colors. It's the story of her mom and her shaped by, you know, deep, deep poverty in the Southeast in Appalachia. And it's a coat made out of rags. And as Dolly's mom is trying to justify it to Dolly and explain it to Dolly and, you know, get Dolly to be confident enough to wear this to school, not knowing how the other kids will react, she ties it into the Bible story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. Mama sewed the rags together so in every piece we love she made my coat of many colors that I was so proud of. As she sewed she told a story from the Bible she had read about a coat of many colors Joseph wore and then she said Perhaps this coat will bring you good luck and happiness. And the way Dolly shares this story, you know, this is from that same period as Coal Miner's Daughter. And both Loretta Lynn and then Dolly Parton share these deeply personal stories, poverty, family, tr 
trying to find the wealth in your emotional happiness if it's not there in your financial situation. And it's just an extraordinary example of Dolly's songwriting power, of her vocal power, and of her really taking control of her career as a young female musician in 1971. And at this point, you know, Dolly is kind of a brand or an industry unto herself as much as Harry Potter or James Bond. And this is really the record that creates the foundation for that legend. Every nice thing that anybody has ever said about Dolly is well-earned and well-deserved. Brilliant songwriter, wonderful singing voice, good musician, fashion icon, social activist. She just seems like everybody's fun, crazy aunt who lives down the street, and she's always going to pop by to help you out or give you some kind of crazy outfit to wear that a year later all your friends are going to be wearing. It's it's just brilliant. And she is one of the queens, all hail, Dolly Parton, Coat of Many Colors, 1971. There's a bit of magic in a simple little smile. Something that just makes life seem a little more worthwhile And there's a world of meaning in the touch of someone's hand A gentle touch that lets your brother know you understand I figure if I'm gonna be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame I'm gonna have to earn it (laughs) 